get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Little pop in shallow right. Walker, good jump. He's going to come on. He's going to make the catch. And he's going to pick up the second out. Driven toward the right field corner. Walker on the run. He dives and got there. Timed his jump perfectly. One out. Driven center. Bay back. That ball is belted right out of here. From hitting the ball in the air. Boom. Missile down the line. Keep it fair. It's a line drive. Homer. Have yourself a homestand, Jordan Walker. We're continuing to see him, the diving play. He's, he's doing some things where it steps in the right direction on both sides of the baseball. He's working really hard early on his base running as well. So um, we're getting closer and closer to seeing a complete player. But to his credit, he's working really hard at it. These are the little wins you're looking for at this point in the season. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kylie Back from a weekend in Tennessee. And guys, while I was out there, Jordan Walker looked like a 10 on the baseball field. It was impressive to watch over the weekend. The defense. That was nice. Thank you, sir. The defense is looking good for Jordan Walker. That has been quite the uh, significant stride for where we were with him earlier in the season. And the offense, man, I said before the season, if he's a little bit above league average offensively, that is a massive win for a guy that is 21 years old, basically skips AAA in his development and is coming up and is trying to figure out big league pitching on the fly. Well, he's 15% above league average now offensively on the season. That's a tremendous rookie year for a guy that's 21 years old. He continued that over the weekend, couple of big flies, couple of big plays in the outfield. T-Bone, what'd you see from our guy, Jordan Walker? He looked like a complete player over the weekend, and he didn't look like there was... I had no time over the weekend defensively where I went, oh boy, here we go. He looked great. He looked calm in right field. He made some great plays, cutting some baseballs off, holding runners to singles, made a nice diving play as well. He looks like a good right fielder right now. He looks like the average right fielder that you were kind of hoping he could get to by the end of the year. And then offensively, he's just taken off. I mean, that home stand hitting above 570, slugging above 1,000 with a 1,600 OPS. He's gotten hot at the plate, and I think it's helping translate to the defensive game. And it's clear, too that there's kind of a message across baseball of, hey, don't test Jordan Walker's arm. Because there were a lot of times this weekend where either the Pirates didn't go first to third or they decided let's not try and stretch this into a double. He looked like a all-around player this weekend, and it looks like a star is being born as someone once wrote in a song. So... I want to say Beyonce, but I can't remember. Uh, Close enough. Uh, Jordan Walker, over his last 26 games, is batting 295. 
got an OPS of over 900 in this stretch of games. T-Bone, the guy that I am starting to see, I don't know if he's going to become this player or not, but when you think about average defensively and hits for average along with some power, probably more doubles, though, than homers, kind of looks a little Matt Holiday-ish, kind of feels that way. I don't know if he's going to be a 300 career hitter the way that Matt Holiday was. The, the odds of that are slim because there are almost no guys in Major League Baseball that hit 300 for their careers at this point in time. However... Matt Holiday got on base at a pretty good clip. He didn't strike out a cr- at a crazy high rate. He hit a ton of doubles. He was a line drive hitter that ended up getting to 25, 20 to 25 home runs on a consistent basis in his career. I think you could see something like that from Jordan Walker. And when you think about defensively where he's at right now, Holiday by the end, yeah, of course, wasn't a, a great outfielder, but he was a perfectly capable outfielder for most of his time here in St. Louis. And I think that's what Jordan Walker is starting to become. And when you look at the company that he's now starting to keep T-Bone, nothing about this is fluky. Sometimes you worry about guys going on a hot stretch at the end of the year. Hey, are we buying into something that's not real? Or they're going up against some of the pitchers, especially on non-contenders that you're probably not going to see this time next year. Like, Are we buying into something that's a fluke? I don't think we are because this has now been a sustained stretch for not just September, but, you know, dating back to early portions of his tenure here in St. Louis as well. Here are the other players, T-Bone, at Jordan Walker's age or younger that have had similar success in terms of their OPS plus while they were at this point in their careers. Bryce Harper, Mike Trout, Francisco Lindor, Carlos Correa, Cody Bellinger, Juan Soto, Gleyber Torres, okay, maybe he's just an okay player, Ronald Acuna Jr., Fernando Tatis Jr., Wander Franco, Michael Harris, and Julio Rodriguez. End of list. Over the last decade, that is everybody his age that has been as productive offensively as Jordan Walker. Say all that, say this. If he's able to continue with this kind of pace the rest of the way, you are locking yourself into a guy that is a perennial all-star. That's what these players are. The list that I just read you, those are all-star caliber players. Whether they get voted in or not, that's the kind of guy that you're building around right now with Jordan Walker. Yeah, absolutely. And the best thing about it is what you said. You're kind of locking yourself into this because he's only going to get better. And you're seeing those improvements this year alone, not just at the plate where he's kind of where we've seen him kind of go through the ebbs and flow of Major League Baseball season where he started off great, got cold, he did end up getting demoted, but came back, played well, had a pretty cold July, and now he's playing well again. And defensively, he continues to improve. He's going to get he's going to continuously get better at the plate as well. He's going to be a guy that to your point is either going to be a Matt Holiday and hit a bunch of doubles and have 20 25 home run power or he could get even better than that be like a 30 home run guy. Like the potential is there for Jordan Walker. He looks like the best bat that the Cardinals have developed since Albert Pujols. And I and you're seeing that come to yeah. Uh, tuition right now. So I, I'm excited to see what the future holds for him. I, I've told you this in the office. I'm typically not a guy that would talk about contract extensions. I would talk with Jordan Walker this offseason. That's how good he's been and how much I can dream on what his future looks like because he is a star and he's a star that's hitting like seventh for the Cardinals right now. The other thing that's really nice about him developing defensively like this, because I mean, I think we saw early on it was A lot of bad, not a whole lot of good. There just were not the flash plays. He was playing so conservative in the outfield that it was like he's he's not giving himself even the opportunity to make quality plays in the outfield. And then eventually you, you started to see some more of those splash plays, but there were still a lot of the really bad negative plays that were there for Jordan Walker. And then over the last month or two, you've started to see a shift where there have been fewer and fewer of the really bad plays defensively 
And you've started to see more of the highlight reel plays like we saw over the weekend with a throw, with a playoff of the wall, with a couple of defensive catches out there. Like you're starting to see, all right, we're getting the plus without as many of the negative. And that's what you wanted to see over the course of a season was that progress from start to finish. And it, there was some ups and downs in between, and there's going to continue to be that. But if he can be an above average defender next year, not good, but above average, you can have Lars Newbar as your center fielder with that guy in right. The problem was when he was bad, like a flat out net negative in right field. You can't have that in right. And then also an average at best defender in center. You can get by with an above average right fielder, average to above average center fielder. And then next year, we'll see what they do in left. I think it's probably going to be mostly Brendan Donovan, but you'll see some other guys get opportunities out there. If Alec Burleson's still around, you'll see him. If Tyler O'Neill, I don't think he's going to be, but if he's still around, maybe you'll see some of that. You're starting to put the pieces together, and that's what the last two to three months of this season was supposed to be about, was finding out where do these guys slot in, what is the ceiling for them, and can we really build around this group defensively in the outfield? I think the answer is starting to become yes. Yeah, and I... I it- I don't want to say you wouldn't build around Jordan Walker even if he was bad defensively, but it would have been a lot tougher going into next season going, okay, what is Walker in right field? At least now you can see that he is trending in the right direction, and I think there's no need to, you know, we've had conversations in the past of what is his future position. I don't think you have those conversations right anymore. Field. It is right field. I was skeptical at first, but now that I'm starting to see him develop into it and become a average right fielder in front of our eyes down the final stretch here of the season – you can officially lock him in right field for the next six years because he is going to be that guy that you build around and you just kind of piece the outfield around with him and Newpar and figure out whether it be center or left field. Does it make you feel better about Goldie at first? For two reasons. One, the bat is real for for, uh, Walker, so it could make up for a little bit of slippage from Goldie over the next couple of years. And two... Goldie is now your first baseman. You don't have to worry about Walker moving positions. Would you feel more comfortable about signing Goldie to an extension this offseason because of what we've seen this year from Jordan Walker? No, um, <laughs> because he because it's clear he's in the downtrend, at least right now. And maybe this year's just a fluke year for Goldie. But I want to see I want to see him get back to more of his normal levels, like his slugging increasing again before I lock him to a, any sort of contract extension. But to your point, I I could understand how you can look at it now and go, okay, maybe Walker, and I think Gorman kind of falls in this conversation, mask some of the decline from Goldschmidt, and Goldie becomes, instead of that power-hitting all-around player, slugs the ball, hits 30 home runs, becomes more of an on-base guy that plays gold-glove-level defense at first, I would just be hesitant to give him any kind of contract because of the decline we've seen this year. But I could see how the Cardinals talk themselves into it, saying it's a legacy player, Walker, Gorman, they can mask any sort of decline that Goldschmidt has. I would do it if it's a reasonable deal. Like, I'm not giving him 25-plus million dollars per year. Abreu last year got a three-year deal at 19.5 per. It's 35 when he signed it. Would you sign that deal for Paul Goldschmidt? So two years on top of what he's got currently at 20 million a year, basically. No. I would wait. I really? would wait. I would I, do that. I would wait till at least the All-Star break before I'm having conversations with Goldie next year. That would be the type of deal that I would do. Two years, $40 million on top of what he's already scheduled to make next year. And Jordan Walker, what we've seen from him, does make me more comfortable in doing that. Because now I don't have to worry about the potential of moving Jordan Walker to first base. And I, I can have those guys as the right side it, of my it, infield slash outfield. And I guess this all depends, too. And I know the text line's not a fan of who I'm about to bring up, but... Depends on how you feel about Alec Burleson. Could Burleson be a guy? I think he's a good defender at first base. Not it's been n- solid. Not the level of Goldschmidt. But if you think Burleson could be a 
av- a average defender or a solid defender at first base and be like right around league average or a little bit above, I could see where you could kind of squint and say maybe Burleson's the first baseman there for two years. I don't think he has the bat that Goldie has, though. I agree. They're different, agree obviously, but um, I I would want to keep Goldie around if possible. I think they made their decision this season when they decided not to trade Goldie. I think they tied themselves to Goldie longer term than what I think some Cardinals fans are currently thinking. Hey, coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we're going to talk to Jeremy Rutherford. He's the Blues insider for The Athletic. He had a sit down recently with Colton Pareko that he wrote about over the weekend. want to get his thoughts on where Colton Pareko is at mentally and physically going into this season. We'll talk to JR about all of that coming up in about 15 minutes or so. You guys can get involved in the show at 314-399-9646. You can also watch us on YouTube. We've got a chat going over there if you'd like to get involved with that at 101 ESPN STL. But coming up next, huge weekend in college football. A lot to get to here. We'll get to our week one superlatives for the college football season coming up here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Week one of the college football season is behind us. We have learned a lot about some of these teams across the college football landscape alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis. I'm Brandon Kylie. Let's dive into some of this. Let's get into some of the week one superlatives, T-Bone. Let's start with a positive. The team that impressed you the most relative to your expectations, the biggest surprise in a pleasant way from week one was who, T-Bone? I think Colorado won, but I think they're kind of the chalk answer, you just how it. impressive fine. they were. I'll throw another team out here because I was talking about them back in the office. Oregon State really kind of turned head for me, watching them against San Jose State. Won in 42-17. DJ Uliungale, the common theme from him at Clemson was he's gooey. Um, but he looked great in that game, and that defense was flying around the football field all that whole game, they just dominated San Jose State. They gave them 14 points late in the fourth, but at that point, the backups were in. Oregon State's a team to kind of keep an eye on in that Pac-12 race. They really kind of raised eyebrows for me, just how good they were this weekend. Dude, that Pac-12 race, by the way. Oh, best conference in football, and you can't change my mind. I think you're right. I know Grant disagrees with yeah. us on this. I'm Grant's, not sold yet. Grant's telling me about who, Tennessee. Who is your conference? Like, if it's not the Pac-12, you would go with who? I'd still go with the SEC until oh, proven otherwise. Crazy man, you're crazy, dude. Like, until they can go up against one of the top teams in the SEC and beat them, it's going to be the or those teams fall off to other teams that are worse than them. Clearly, it's not going to change my mind. Like, the Pac-12 didn't play anybody this week. I, they just didn't. I mean, one of them did. I'll go with my team real quick. Colorado played a real team. Sure. Yeah. Not from the SEC, but a real team that went to the college football playoff a year ago. Now, how'd they do against Georgia last year in the championship? Uh, yes. There's a lot of disclaimers that go into this. First with the TCU side. This is not the same team that won or went to the national championship last year. It's a very different team with a different quarterback, different wide receivers. They don't have the first round talent that they had a year ago. I have no idea if TCU is going to end up being good. This might be one of those games, and I always revert back to it. There was a game a few years ago. um, I can't even remember who was involved with it at this point, but it was two teams that people were like, okay, one of these two teams is going to go in the right direction. It was like Notre Dame versus somebody. And the truth was they both stunk. They're both terrible. But it made for an incredible week one game where it was high scoring, super exciting. And then like four weeks later, we all realized, oh, both of those teams were bad. And what we really learned 
was that they just had the ability to score on bad defenses because they both had a bad defense. That might be what we look back at this game on, but it does not matter because the information that we have right now is Colorado looked fun as hell in the opening weekend. And Colorado, to me, was the biggest surprise. Guys, I think there's been a lot of revisionist history going on. They were a 20-point underdog in this game. Yeah. This was their best win for their program in 20 years. Watching that game at halftime, it said on the broadcast that Colorado had not led a game at halftime since 2021. Yeah, you can go back to 2002 was the last time that they won a game on the road against a ranked opponent. It's been a minute since this program was relevant at all. And Dion completely overhauls the roster. I thought it might be a disaster. I'm not going to be a fraud right now. I thought it had the chance to blow up completely in their face. I liked the hire. It was worth taking a chance on it because you're Colorado. What's the worst thing that could happen? You suck? Well, (laughs) look what the program's been recently. (laughs) It could not have gone any better in week one. Colorado was the biggest story in all of college football for one week of the season. Do you know how much it takes for that to happen at Colorado? So for me, the most pleasant surprise was the team that has probably the top two leaders for the Heisman after the first week of the season, one at quarterback, one going at wide receiver and defensive back, and then the coach that as of today would be the leader in the clubhouse for coach of the year. So yeah, mine is absolutely Colorado, and they are part of that Pac-12 that ended up having a great great weekend overall. teams deep, by the way. We'll, we'll, we'll see how that goes Who's towards the end. Surprise? They're easily the biggest surprise. But the other team that surprised me was Clemson in a bad way. Like Duke only letting them score seven points. Duke, the number nine team in the nation going into the season, only putting up seven points. That's insane to me. And Clemson shouldn't be ranked after this week. They just shouldn't after that performance. That was terrible. The other team that also surprised me was Florida State in a good way. Um, I I wasn't surprised necessarily that they beat LSU. Alex and I were both talking about it on Friday that that game felt like an upset going into it. But the fact that they beat them 45 to 24, like they really ran away with that game. So how they won it did surprise me. So those would be my other two surprises this weekend. Love the Florida State one. And that gets us into the other side of this, the most negative takeaway that we could have from the weekend. Biggest disappointment. LSU has to be on that list. Yeah. yeah. What what happened? Like, they looked awful. I They looked like a team coming into the season that on paper had a chance to be able to compete for a college football playoff. I don't even know if that's on the table for them anymore. Now, Florida State might be really good. And if they are, we'll look back at this and say, damn, week one, they played one of the four toughest teams in the country, and that set, set us back on them. We we were put off the scent of LSU because of that. It's in play. But as of today, I don't think I can take them seriously in that way. Another one that I would go to, though, to give something a little differently. Timo, what's up with your Illini, dude? 30-28 at home against Toledo? Only one because of a pick six. Toledo's probably a top fifteen team. Had to in the kick country. a field goal at the end of the game to win it. Talking Ooh. about nerve wracking too, by the way. Ooh, I did not like the way that they played I did that not one out. either. <laughs> dude, you're in college, dude. Never yeah. play for the field goal kicker to win it for you. I will say this: Altmaier is going to make some plays and he's going to lose some games for you. This is very different than a year ago. What we learned about your quarterback in Week One is that he is going to be a high-variance type of a player. He's going to make some huge plays, and he's going to make some plays that nobody else would because they shouldn't. So it's going to be a little more fun in that way, but that is going to put some other teams into games that you shouldn't be in, and that happened this weekend. So one of the bigger disappointments to me was the Illini. I thought they would be able to do better than that against Toledo. Yeah, I, I thought that they would. it would be a tough game 
but the way that the Illini played had me very worried. Look, I knew the defense was probably going to be kind of a question mark going into the year because of all the pieces they lost. And honestly, the secondary, which was a big question going into this game, I thought it played very well. I'm not sure they're going to be able to replace Witherspoon, but you're not really going to be able to do that very often in any program. But the part that was most concerning to me... O-line? And D-line. <laughs> The D-line with Randolph and Newton is supposed to be really good. They got manhandled by a Mac offensive line. And the O-line for the Illini also got kind of beat up by Toledo. They had trouble running the football. The Illini defense had trouble containing the quarterback, which guess what? It's not going to fare well against Kansas. And then the other thing for me, too, is like, look, I understand that you were kind of learning what Altmaier is first time in-game action. Sure. Bielma. Buddy, we got to open up the playbook. We got a quarterback that can throw the football down the field. They were, it felt like they were too conservative offensively. I don't think they knew what they had. I, I, if they were I honest. get that. I, I get that. But I think by the time you ended the first half, it was clear, hey, we got to start opening up the passing game. Yep. And they didn't. They stayed with the conservative play calling, which it felt like last year's playbook, which that worked for last year's team. Problem is now you don't have Chase Brown. And Love and um, drawing a blank on the other guy that was running the football for the Illini, they were okay. They weren't great. But you got a quarterback now. Altmaier can run, and we saw the big-time arm that he has. To your point, yes, he probably will lose you a couple games, but he can be a difference maker with Tommy DeVito than Tommy DeVito was. So they're on that list for me. Another team sticking in the Big Ten that let me – or didn't let me down, but was disappointing. Ohio State's not not a playoff team. We can write them off now. They were barely beating Indiana 10-3 at halftime. Their quarterback was not good. They've got great weapons at wide receiver. Stinks, dude. Oh, the Big Ten's <laughs> awful. It's bad. And you think you think we're talking Ohio State? That side is at least going to be fine with Michigan and Penn State. The West sucks. Like it's terrible. But McCord was not a good was not good in that game against Indiana. Two hundred thirty nine passing yards and interception. Right off Ohio State. They're not making the college football playoff. Did you have a disappointment from the weekend, Grant? I had one other one, and it was South Carolina. That oh, game. dude. Yeah. You I, was, both, I was expecting that one to be a really good one. And actually, on Friday, I said I thought South Carolina was going to win that game. And it was close for, what, the first quarter? I had South and, Carolina in that one, too. Yeah, North Carolina just ran away with it. 31-17 was the final. Maybe I underestimated what North Carolina was, but I think more so I overrated what South Carolina was because they just didn't really bring it in a game that's a huge rivalry. I'll give credit to North Carolina, man. I didn't trust their defense, and their defense showed up in this one. They've got a quarterback. Hey, Drake May is really good, man. You, you, we've seen across college football. Look at the Pac-12. What's different this year? They've got quarterbacks. What's different at Notre Dame this year? They've got a quarterback. If you've got a stud quarterback, you can make some things happen. North Carolina has that, but you got to pair it with a defense. I think Clemson has a decent quarterback right now. They don't have a defense that could play at all last night. So um, I liked what we saw out of North Carolina. That is a team to watch in the ACC, especially after what we saw from Clemson. Yeah. And that's another team that we could throw into this mix as well. All right, coming up in about 15 minutes or so, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. We'll get to some questions and answers. If you guys have any college football questions, we'll get into those coming up at 1145. But coming up next, Jeremy Rutherford had a good piece over the weekend on Colton Pareko, where he's at mentally and physically. What does JR expect from Pareko this season? We'll ask him next here on 101 ESPN. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Tanner and Grant, I'm Brandon Kylie. Alex is out this week. He'll be back in next week here on 101 ESPN. You've got BK and Ferrario. Let's go out to the 101 ESPN hotline to be joined by Jeremy Rutherford, the Blues insider for The Athletic. You can follow him on Twitter at JP Rutherford, and you can find his work over at The Athletic, where JR, over the weekend, I was reading your piece on Colton Pareko. You got to sit down with him, talk to him about his mindset and his where he's at physically. What did you take away from your conversation with Colton Pareko, JR? Yeah, BK, thanks for having me, boys. Uh, yeah, I just think sitting down with him for about 20, 30 minutes uh, last week, I think it was, uh, just that he's ready to hit the reset button. I think that he looked back at last year and realizes that it was a bad year uh, for him. You know, we all know that it was a difficult year for the team and the defense especially, uh, but he said he didn't play well. And the one takeaway is he didn't want to come out necessarily and say it. He hesitated a little bit, but he really felt like last year, was one bad year out of eight. And uh, if you go back, you know, just a couple seasons, you remember he missed the uh, extended time with the shoulder injury and, and um, came back and, and I'm sorry, the back injury. And he came back and, uh, and struggled a little bit, uh, but then he found his footing and he's played, you know, a lot since then you look at the games played, even coming back from that back injury. And here's a guy who's been durable the problem is the consistent play has not been there. So, you know, if you look Colton Preco in the eyes and you talk to him about the upcoming season, you just could tell that he's ready to hit the reset button and try to show himself, show the team that he's a better player than he showed last year. Jared, one of the things that you wrote about in this was his role, right? And how difficult it is to be a guy that is going to start so often in the defensive zone. And you put out the list of guys that have a similar role to him. And most of them do have an expected goals for below 50%, which means you expect the other team to score more than they do again, because of that role. How is he internalizing that? How, how is he internalizing the role that he's been given here in St. Louis? Yeah, I think we go back to when uh, Alex Petrangelo left, and I remember Doug, calling Doug Armstrong shortly after and telling him I'm writing a story about Colton Preco, and he said, well, he's going to be the alpha male. And I think that that's what kind of the standard was of him within the organization. And, of course, we know that, that he has not been that guy. You know, truly speaking, BK, there's six or seven of those types of guys in the league. Not all 32 teams have a guy like an Alex Petrangelo. So, you know, I think that you talk to Pareko and he says that, you know, you don't, what is the definition of a number one? It doesn't always have to be the guy who does every part of the game, the power play, the PK, you know, shutting down the other team's top line, so on and so forth. He feels like if everybody's clicking with this Blues team, which we, of course, did not see last year, you've got different guys who can do that. Tori Krug on the power play. You know, maybe Justin Falk can help a little bit with the five on five Pareko can be more of a shutdown guy. So, you know, anybody listening to this knows that we didn't see any of that last year. So you're going to question that completely. All I'm trying to do is come to you with what Colton Pareko feels his role is and how he's handled it in the past few years. JR, if he does bounce back this season and get back to being the Pareko that you expected, and honestly kind of what he looked like after the trade deadline and he puts that together for a whole year, what does that do for the Blues ceiling this year? Well, I think it, it, it's certainly going to help solidify 
the back end. That's going to be the major number one question, the spotlight. Everybody going into the season is going to focus on, on the defense. And if you don't have a good, solid Colton Pareko playing 22, 23 minutes a night and playing consistently, then I don't know how you can have the defense recover. You know, because if he's playing well, you know, it probably means that Nick Letty's playing well if he's in the same pair. And then that gives the ability to a second pair of Krug and Falk to kind of do their job and not have to compensate for an inconsistent Colton Pareko. So I think defensively, you don't want to say that it hinges on Pareko because you certainly need those other three guys in that top four and even beyond that. But I think if Pareko is giving you what you need, you know, that is going to raise the you know, the stock of not only himself, but I think uh, of what the defense is capable of. And, and to me, that's going to be the key of the season. There's a lot of depth up front. There's some scoring potential. There's some young players on the way. But this team's not going anywhere without the defensive improvement. Well, Jr., you mentioned his partner, Nick Letty. And I, looking at that spot, that the guy that's going to be with Preco, part of this shutdown pairing, the Blues targeted Sanheim in the offseason. He was reportedly in those discussions uh, in the Kevin Hayes deal. Is finding that partner for Preco kind of the key that kind of unlocks the Blues to exit this retool? Yeah, it, the only thing is, I don't know that, uh, you know, if you're an NHL team, you can sit around and, and say that uh, we got to find the perfect partner. Look, whoever the partner is, it, it's got to work. And Colton Preco has to make it work. And so do you get a Jay Boldmeister in there? And, and it works, and, and, and you win a Stanley Cup, and you got to move on. You know, rosters evolve, and new players come in, and he's had three or four players where obviously you can't replicate that Bowmeister success, but, you know, you got to have something that's a lot more consistent every night basis. You know what you're going to get from that pair. And, and I think at times we've seen it from that group of Letty and Pareko. We saw it in the playoffs. We saw what Letty can do against some of the, the, the better players, the faster players, the more uh, exciting players in the league, but we didn't see it last year from him. So yes, to me, you know, Nick Letty's got to be back uh, up to what he played a couple years ago, and I think uh, you're going to have opportunity with this defense. I mean, I'm not saying Scott Pernovich is going to play in the top pair, but if you're going to come into this season with nine healthy defensemen, I think you got eight on one way. You, you talk nine if you got Kelly Rosen who's on a two way, and guys are going to be given opportunity to play in the top pair if Nick Letty's not getting the job done. So I don't know within this nine man group if you have a perfect partner for Colton Prickle, but you got to make something work. Otherwise, you're going to have to go out and find it. Jeremy Rutherford is our guest for just another couple of minutes here on 101 ESP, and you can read his great piece on Colton Prickle over at The Athletic and always follow him on Twitter at JP Rutherford. Uh, Jer, final question that I had on this specific line of uh, thinking with Colton Pareko. What do you think the ideal partner looks like for them? Like, set aside who the Blues have available to them. Just if they could, in a lab, create what the partner looks like, what do you think it is? Is it speed? Is it a guy that's just really great in their own zone with physicality? What do you think that player looks like? Well, the easiest way to answer that question would say, you know, what does Jay Bolmeister look like? And I hate to refer back to that because sure. it's impossible to, to, to bring him back. But I think what you would derive out of that is – reliability. That was the biggest thing with Jay Bolmeister. You know, yeah, he could jump up in the play. Yes, you know, you could count on him back in the defensive zone. He was a terrific penalty killer, had the long stick, had, had all that stuff. But if you ask me, you know, what did he have that would make Colton Prickle better? If you could put that in a player today, it would be that reliability so that Colton Prickle can be comfortable, you know, doing what he does. Uh, getting up on the ice, because we know when he skates with the puck, he's one of the best in the league at it. So if he can get up the ice, and have that comfort knowing that there's a guy like a Bowmeister uh, back, I, I think that uh, you know that allows Colton to be who he is. That's what he kept saying throughout the interview. Allow me to be the player uh, that I can be. Now, all that said, 
he's got to be much better. And I'm not one of those guys in the camp who said, you know, he's got to be meaner. He's got to, you know, throw elbows. He's got to do that. Of course, you have to play physical in this game if you want to survive and you want to be that type of shutdown pair. But that guy, Colton Pareko, doesn't have that. He's going to play the game a different way, and he's shown that he can be successful that way. If he's up to standard, if he's got that reliable partner, I think it can happen. Well, JR, they say the the best defender is the goaltender, and I, I don't want to focus on Jordan Binnington because I think you know what Benner is at this point. But I do want to talk about Joel Hofer, the Blues turning over the reins to the backup goalie to a rookie. What are their hopes that Joel Hofer can do that can help kind of take away some of that load from Jordan Binnington this this season? Yeah, I think Tanner. If you look at the goaltending situation, what did Bennington play sixty games last year? You know, it was probably a, a hair too much. I think they'd probably want him to be uh, in that fifty to fifty-five range. But you don't know what Joel Hofer can provide from a games played. You, you just don't know yet. I, I think you can look at him and say he's definitely durable. Uh, he's played a lot in the American Hockey League, so he's shown that he can go the distance. Uh, but I think the NHL is a different game. And so, can he play thirty games? You hope he can, and we'll see. Can you get into a situation where you have a lull with Jordan Bennington? You throw Hofer in there for three straight and he can win you some games? I think he has that capability, uh, but we'll see. But I think this year, you don't want to say this is going to be a year for Joel Hofer to get his uh, feet wet because he's got to be able to compete. He's going to have to you know, uh, be there when the team needs him. But I think that Joel Hofer playing that first year at his age in the NHL, you're going to see what you can expect from him through the first couple months of the season, and I think base it from there. That's the one thing that I believe the Blues do a great job with with the goaltending. You can only map it out so far. You can map the starts out so far, but you got to be able to react. They've done a great job with that. I think they'll do a great job with Joel Hofer and just kind of feel out what he has to offer and then put him in good situations to succeed. Joe, we're less than three weeks away from the start of the NHL preseason. Looking forward to reading all of your work as we start to find out some of the answers to the questions that we've been asking all offseason. Appreciate the time as always. We'll talk with you again next week, my man. Yeah, thanks, guys. Fun piece coming out tomorrow. NHL player cheat meals, cheat foods. What do they eat when they're eating a cheat meal? What's your, uh, should be up what's your cheat meal, tomorrow. JR? <laughs> all my meals are cheap. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to tell you my healthy meal. That'd be the uh, odd one out. <laughs> Appreciate you, JR. Take it easy, man. All right. See you guys. You got it. That's Jeremy Ruth for joining us here on 101 ESPN. Always appreciate his time. Check out the work uh, that he's doing over on The Athletic. Had a great piece, like we said, on Colton Pareko. He's the key to the season, man. Like, you asked the question, what is the ceiling for the Blues if Colton Pareko is the player that they thought he was going to be? There's a lot of other factors that go into this, of course. But the ceiling is the playoffs. Like, they can be a playoff team this year if you end up getting this type of season out of Colton Pareko that they were hoping to see out of him regularly when they gave, when they gave him that long-term contract extension. That's, that's where they're at. Yeah, and, and I the reason I also asked about kind of his partner, too, is because I, I think, to your point, you can be a playoff team if Pareko reaches his ceiling and bounces back and is the player that you were expecting. I don't think you can get yourself to the next level until you can find his partner with him. And I don't think Letty's that guy. I don't think they have that guy on the roster. And that's why I kind of asked that question, because I mentioned it last week. The Blues can't exit the retool, in my opinion, until they find the partner with Colton Pareko. I think it's why the, I think it's why Sandheim was clearly their target this offseason, was they viewed him as the guy that was going to pair with Pareko, and they had that lockdown number one pairing. Whether Pareko bounced back or not, at least you said, this is our defensive number one defensive pairing, and you don't have to squint and go, is it Nick Letty with him? Is it Marco Scandella? Don't get me wrong. Preco is the key to the blue season. 
But I think for them to get to that next level and exit this retool, I think his partner is more the key because you've got to find that guy that pairs well with him. The numbers that he had in his piece on the defensive zone starts were pretty telling. It, it, t- it shows you exactly what kind of a role they want Colton Pareko yeah. to be in. And now it's a matter of finding a guy that can help get the most out of him within that role. You know how to utilize him. Now it's extracting the most from that specific role. Alongside T-Bone and Grant on BK, coming up next, 314-399-9646 is the Air Covered Service text line. Questions and answers here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. We're right back to more of it. It's BK and Ferrario, live from the Car Shield Studio on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe it's BK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. 314-399-9646 is the air, air comfort service text line for questions and answers. Let's start with this from the 314. Guys, as of today, after we've seen one week of college football playoff or college football action, who would be your four teams to make the college football playoff? I'm sure none of this is going to come back to bite us, and nobody on the text line will hold us accountable. So since yeah. none of that is happening, T-Bone, who'd you got? So I think Georgia, Michigan still are currently locks. We haven't really learned anything about them yet, but I think it's safe to assume that those two are playoff teams right now. I don't think Ohio State is. I'm not sold on Alabama just yet. We'll find out more about them this week. So I think the two teams that I really like, Florida State, I think is going to get in. They looked really impressive this week against LSU. And then for me, it comes down to either Notre Dame or whoever wins the Pac-12. And I think right now I would lean towards Notre Dame uh, just because we've got to see how the Pac-12 kind of sorts itself out because it is the best conference in college football. That's right, text line. You heard me because I saw you criticizing when I said that last time. I, I would say Notre Dame and Florida State are in with Michigan and Georgia for me right now. And I think whoever wins the Pac-12 is going to be right there, too. So I love I've, Washington, by I've the way. I've got two teams um, on that list that are the same for sure, Georgia Michigan. And then I've got four teams, really, like five or six, battling for the other two spots. Texas, Notre Dame, Florida State, and then the entire Pac-12. Just all of them. Just throw them into the mix, and whoever comes out of that gauntlet, because it is, as we said earlier, Grant, the best conference in America this year. Whoever comes out of that will also be battling for it. So Pac-12, FSU, Texas, Notre Dame, those four entities, I guess, are all battling for two spots in the current college football playoff status. Yeah, the first three teams I wrote down were Georgia, Alabama, and USC. Those are the top three teams that I like. The fourth spot, I kind of uh, went around and about there. Um, I looked at Michigan's schedule. It is weak. Yeah, like they have. Well, two... they play the big, uh, big Ten, and as yeah. we know, yeah. the Big Ten's not good at football right now. That conference stinks. They've got two ranked opponents. It's Ohio State and Penn State. I think they probably lose one of those games, but I think they probably win every other game on their schedule. So they'll be a one-loss team, and I think they make it in. So those are my four: Georgia, Alabama, USC, and Michigan. See, I, I don't think USC's a playoff team. They've got no defense, and in a Pac-12 that is loaded. Not only just loaded with talent, but loaded with great quarterback play. I see a tough time where USC is going to get through that gauntlet untouched and not be a especially with their defense and be a playoff. Team. Yeah, that's the biggest thing. They have no defense. I I love Washington. I I didn't put them in my top four because again, we'll see how the the Pac-12 gauntlet plays out. I, I love that Washington Penix look great. They've got great wide receivers on there. We'll see how their defense translates once we get closer into Pac-12 play. They're a sneaky team for me. Did you watch any of Alabama this weekend? 
I did it's not. It's okay if you didn't. They played Middle Tennessee. Like, you didn't miss anything. I watched. I got home from work uh, right around the fourth quarter when the game was over, yeah. basically running clock. But they did what they were supposed to do. Jalen Milroe looked good. Um, so, But I'm excited to see what they do against Texas. Because that's, that's, that's where you can find out kind of where they're at. I saw somebody make the comparison earlier today between Jalen Milroe and Jalen Hurts. Thought to myself, okay, if you can have... Jalen Hurts on this Alabama team. What does that mean for them? Because their schedule is a little bit of a gauntlet this year. I mean, it's tough. You got Texas coming up this weekend. This is a huge game. You cannot overstate how big this game is for Alabama and for Texas, frankly. Then later on this year, top 25 opponents against Ole Miss, Texas A&M, Tennessee, LSU. That does not count a game at the end of the season in the Iron Bowl against Auburn as well. That is not an easy slate to be able to get through. And that's just to get to the right to play Georgia, most likely, in the SEC championship game. If you lose one of these games, you have to beat Georgia in the big, uh, in the SEC championship game. If you lose two, you're probably not making it there and definitely not getting into the college football playoff. I think it might just be too difficult of a road for this specific Alabama team to be able to get through. So I, I will not have them in my current iteration of the college football playoff. But then I look over at ESPN. They put out their... SP plus of the advanced football rankings for this week. They have Alabama number one again. So I'm, I very well may end up being wrong again. On now Alabama. I'm really rooting for him to lose against <laughs> Texas. I do think that's a, that's a fair way to look at it. Texas last year, that game with it being so close, that was the first game where you looked at Alabama with some raised eyebrows like, Ooh, this, that looks rough. So I think there's no doubt that this upcoming weekend, it's going to be that Alabama-Texas game that's the most intriguing. We'll tell you the most about where they're going to end up. Uh, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line from the 636. Guys, I took uh, Justin Fields over Trevor Lawrence and Justin Herbert this weekend in my fantasy football draft. Was that a good or a bad move? I think it, there's a lot of context here that is super important in terms of how many teams you've got in your league, etc. But just top line takeaway, I, I have no problem with that at all. Because Fields has the potential to be the number one fantasy quarterback this year. I wouldn't, I, I'm not projecting that, but because of the way that he runs, he can be the number one fantasy quarterback this year. And that's what I want out of my guy that I'm drafting. I have no issues with it. I like it because it's bold. Um, I wouldn't do it because I would have gone more certainty in Herbert and Lawrence because you know for a fact that those guys are going to put up points. And I think for Fields, to your point, he does have the potential to be the number one QB. But the Chicago Bears are such a swing team to where I could see where it goes really well or it goes really poorly this year. It's why I would have gone with the sure thing. But I like it. I like the idea of going bold and shooting for the stars with your quarterback play there. I'm with T-Bone too. But at the same time, I, I don't know if Justin Fields is going to be better than those two. But at the same time, it's probably not going to be that far of a drop off if he's not. So you're really banking yeah. on upside and the floor is pretty high there. Absolutely. I, I've got no issues with it whatsoever. Uh, from the 636 guys, do you think that the Chiefs could still get the first round by if Chris Jones doesn't report until week eight? Not a playoff team, right? Get out of here. <laughs> uh, yeah, I still think they can get the bye. They've got a. Uh, oh, really? I don't. There's only one. I don't think that they're the best team in the AFC in the regular season if Chris Jones does not report until week eight. I Tough schedule. Defense takes a little bit of a step back. More questions early on in the season around their wide receiver core. They start out the year with Detroit, Jacksonville, the New York Jets, and you've got L.A. Those That's all within the first eight weeks of the season. That's tough, dude. Yeah. And you're on the road at Minnesota, which is, I don't think Minnesota's going to be great this year, but they've got a good offense. I, I think it's tougher, no doubt about it, but I, 
I think Mahomes in that offense can carry them if if needed. And again, at some point he's going to report. Um, but yeah, I, week nine, he has to be there. Yeah. So worst case scenario, he's there week nine. Mm-hmm. I think he's going to report sooner than that. Um, so I, I think, yeah, they can still do it without Chris Jones. I, they've got Patrick freaking Mahomes. I'm not going to discount them for anything. I, to be clear, I still think they're winning the Super Bowl. I just don't think they're getting the bye this year. I well, think they'll have the second opinion. best record in the AFC. Um, I think somebody else will end up with a better record in the regular season than them. And then they'll go on the road and kick the hell out of them in the postseason. Can I uh, pass along some... I'll call it news. Sure. Uh, from PowerMizzou.com on Twitter, no or is listed between Brady Cook and Sam Horn on the week two depth chart for Mizzou. Eli Drinkwitz talks oh, in four minutes. Did you guys talk about this on Friday? About the quarterback play? Yeah. yeah I loved what Brady Cook did. Um, so two things. One, you're right. The th- touchdown pass that he had to Makai Miller was the best throw I've seen him make in a Mizzou uniform. It was a tremendous throw, and Mizzou fans crapped all over him afterwards. And it was honestly embarrassing for a Mizzou fan base that I consider myself to be a part of to treat his quarterback that way. Stop. He's your quarterback. Your coach has told you. That's my quarterback. Coach has told you all offseason, basically. At every turn, we want to replace this guy. He has tried like hell to replace Brady Cook as the starting quarterback at Mizzou. And he has failed every time because Brady has outplayed whoever he brings in as the competition. You bring in Jake Garcia, I'm better than him. You bring in Sam Horn and give him all the NIL money in the world, I'm better than him. Hey, man, kudos to Brady Cook. If you go out there and you ball out and you show your teammates and your coaches all offseason while you're recovering from a shoulder surgery even, every opportunity was given to these other guys. And they couldn't do it. They couldn't take it from him. So he outplayed them once again, and the handling of that quarterback situation in week one told you everything you needed to know. Yeah. Even if they didn't take away the or on the depth chart this week, we knew. Yeah. He put he, he put Sam Horn in the game when it was already determined. It was predetermined that that was going to be the case. Mizzou was playing a terrible football team. So of course they were going to be up big in the second half, and that was going to mean Sam Horn got fewer opportunities. They did it that way on purpose. They wanted him to get fewer opportunities because they don't trust him the way that they trust Brady Cook. Good on Brady Cook. I liked the way that we saw him play in week one. I hope we see more of them in week two. I, I said this, I guess this was Friday when we reacted to the win on Thursday, um, which makes sense. Um, he reminds me a little bit of Tommy DeVito where all you got, can you just make the smart play? We don't necessarily need that huge shot down the but field. He's got At some legs point, you're going to need to. Yeah, that too. DeVito didn't really, he could run the ball but it was like, oh my God, there's a 300-pound lineman after me. I got to run. Um, yeah, he's got him running legs. from a bear more than it was like <laughs> me trying to gain yards. But it, can he be your DeVito? I think he can. And with, with the weapons that you got on offense, and I like what they did play calling-wise, but it was tough to really read into what the OC was doing because that was a very vanilla yeah. playbook. I, I think Brady Cook can be the quarterback for Mizzou. Now, are there other guys that you can find more upside in potentially Yeah, he's later none on? of the guys from the Pac-12. Yes. Like, he, he doesn't have that potential, but he... He can be a he can be your Alex Smith. Yes. He's gonna run a little bit. He's gonna be accurate, and you get the ball in your playmaker. Boy, Luther Burden looked awesome. He did actual yes. wide receiver stuff in that game. First time I've seen that from him. Last year it was just all gadgety. Hey, we're gonna get you behind the line of scrimmage bubbles. He like ran real routes. He was running deep overs and stuff that actually matters and translates to the next level. So um, I really liked what we saw from most of the Mizzou guys that you cared about. Yeah, the end score was closer than what you wanted it to be that game was over at halftime the second half did not matter so um i thought we saw everything that we needed to see and you got to see that again this saturday and then the real season begins the following week against k-state who looked real good in week number one well against a great cmo team yeah yeah coming up next 
We can cross another starter off of the Cardinals' free agency plans. That doesn't really matter for them because he was never on their list, but it certainly matters for the other teams that might have considered him. We'll tell you what that means for the Cardinals next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Well, you say ever pitching again this season. Let's extend that to ever pitching again, period. We've seen in the case of his former teammate, Trevor Bauer, who uh, was disciplined under Major League Baseball's policy for domestic violence and was suspended 324 games that later got reduced to 194, but was still a truly significant suspension. And he is playing in Japan now. Um, Urias, on the other hand, is a free agent this upcoming offseason and uh, the notion of him getting back this year for the Dodgers uh, is, you know, it is seemingly unlikely. That was Jeff Pass and trying to make sense of what's taking place right now with Julio Urias. Now, let's say this very clearly up front. None of this has been proven. These are all charges at this point in time, and therefore the due process will play out. All right, I had to put all that out there on the front end. Now I can say what I really need to say. The Cardinals are not signing Julio Arias this offseason. I don't think they were ever going to because this is the second time now that he has been uh, at least accused of domestic violence, but this time it has reached the felony levels. He was released over the weekend on a $50,000 bond. Uh, He was arrested at around 11 o'clock at night, and now I don't think that the Cardinals are even interested in him. I don't think they were before, but they're definitely not now. Julio Urias was one of the best pitchers that was going to be available on the open market. And now we don't know what his future is going to hold. These types of things typically take a lot of time. I don't know how far into the offseason this is going to go, but it's probably going to go a while. I don't think that while it is still taking place, he will be signed. I think this is a situation where he's going to be kind of on the back burner for a bunch of teams, and they'll try to figure out, okay, what happened here? They're going to get all of the information available, and they'll see what happens with the legal process. But in the meantime, teams got stuff they got to do, man. Julio Urias is having a down season, not just by his standards, but by any standards. Got a 4-6 ERA on the season, and so there was already going to be some question marks about him going into free agency. Velo's down. He doesn't look like the same pitcher that he has been in the past. I don't think this affects the Cardinals all that much because I don't think he was in their plans. I do think it affects other teams that might have been interested in Julio Urias, specifically the Dodgers. He was already there. He's 26 years old. He is still, even with a down season, a solid innings eater at worst and has the upside to be a number two or a number one at best. So the Dodgers, I always felt like, hey, if we're not going to go get Shohei Otani, maybe we just stick with Julio Arias. He's like one of the three best pitchers on the market now. Just keep him here. We don't have to go out to the open market and deal with all the uncertainty of other pitchers. Well, now that's gone. And so what this really does, T-Bone, for the Cardinals it eliminates one other guy that other teams could have considered. So now, Shohei crossed off if you're looking for a pitcher. Urias crossed off if you're looking for a pitcher. There are two pitchers that remain among the top tier for not just the Cardinals, for anybody. Now it really is Blake Snell, Aaron Nola, or Bust. For some people, they will include Yamamoto into that group. Maybe the Dodgers are one of those teams. But even if you want to, that's three. Three pitchers at most that are in that top tier. T-Bone, the Cardinals have to get one of them. They have to. You have to be willing to go out into that market and pay what it's going to take to get a legit front-end starter. Whether you want to call him a number one or a number two, I don't care. But a front-end starter, 
And now we're down to three of those guys for the Cardinals, for the Dodgers, for the Mets, whose general manager came out over the weekend and said, yeah, we are definitely in the pitching market this offseason. For any other team, maybe the Rangers want to get back into the pitching market this offseason. There's going to be a whole lot of teams, the Giants, Mariners maybe, a whole lot of teams that wants to get into the free agent market again this offseason. The Cardinals got to beat all of them. And that takes a lot. It's going to take some cojones. It's going to take a lot of money. It's going to take a lot of convincing but that's where the Cardinals have put themselves. Yeah, they're they're in a tough spot, and it just keeps getting tougher because of this. And to your point, now you've started getting into that bidding war. We know the Cardinals don't like to do that. They don't like to get into massive bidding wars. That's going to be the case for an Aaron Nola. If they have interest in Blake Snell, there there's going to be a massive bidding war for Blake Snell. Yamamoto, we saw the report there were 10 teams scouting him in, a, in his uh, last outing. So they're going to have to get uncomfortable. They're going to probably have to even get to the point where it is, Man, we real this is our offer and now we got to go beyond that. That's what they're going to have to do this offseason. The the way that this pitching market has played out has really become a hamper on the Cardinals because of the fact of the matter that the top tier has been knocked down to just three arms now. And it I'm fascinated to see what the St. Louis Cardinals do because they are going to have to pony up. They've got to get the front end rotation guy and I don't think they want to trade from their offensive core to go hit the trade market to go find that guy. So you really got to try and penny up and try and outbid some of these big market teams for a NOLA. I, I don't even know if Snell was originally on their list of guys that they had that much interest in. Because I think the Cardinals? Yeah, because I think NOLA was the guy where it was, hey, that's certainty. That's as certain as it can get when we go to free agency. But if his market all of a sudden just takes off now because of the Urias situation and because Otani's now off the market as a pitcher, they may have to now pivot to get to that uncomfortable point with a guy like a Blake Snell, which, don't get me wrong, I, I wouldn't knock them for doing it, but it doesn't feel like the kind of acquisition that they are looking for. So here's something. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. From the 618, the Cardinals are not going to get into that market. You guys better start looking at the overpriced second and third tier starters. From the 314, there's zero chance of the Cardinals spending this kind of money on a starter. It wasn't going to happen before this news, and it's definitely not happening now. There are others that are basically the exact same thing of that. Do you think it will matter to Cardinals fans if they do this? Like, will it earn the Cardinals anything among this fan base if they say, bleep it, we just got to go out there and spend the necessary money? Like, forget the results. Looking at it, and let's say they sign either Snell or Noah. I don't know which one. If you think one earns them more than the other, than that one. 25 to $30 million per year on a six-year deal. Would that change, do you think, at all Cardinals fans' stance on how this team approaches things? Or is it too little too late? And I, I, I'm curious on the text line, by the way. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Would that change at all the way that you think the Cardinals approach things? I think it just can't stop there. And what I mean by that is I think the fan base would be really excited about, hey, look, they they are pinning up for pitching in that top-tier market. But then you also probably got to get a second-tier guy, too. Like, I think those two things are kind of coincided. So let's say they get Aaron Nola and... Now, let's say Nola signs first. I think the immediate reaction would be, okay, there we go. They are willing to spend the money, but is it another pop gun offseason? Which we know it can't be, but is it, okay, you sign that top-tier guy, but now do you have to go, like, uh, what, uh, I'm drawing a blank, uh, barn bin shopping. Bargain bin charm. Thank you. Man, that was I didn't tough. know what you were looking for. That I know. I, <laughs> we got there, though. It Go was ahead. a three-day weekend. But that would be the fears. I think the fan base would see the first initial signing of NOLA 
and go, oh, wow, that's great. But then they'd go, okay, now we still need pitching. We can't go bargain pitch. Kind of similar to the Contreras signing and similar exactly. to the Goldie offseason. I remember being on the year when Goldie was traded for, and the reaction was, that's awesome. It's a really good move. Now what? Now, now what are you going to do? Because getting Paul Goldschmidt is a good thing, objectively. And it's the most Cardinals move ever that you were able to go out there and acquire him. Now go finish the offseason. Don't just go do that. Go continue. It's the old thing that we heard uh, from Mike Farron where he's like, I feel like the Cardinals always go up to the line and never cross it. This offseason, the Cardinals have to get to that line and then sprint past it yeah. <laughs> and continue going. Um, I, I also... I will be curious to see what that secondary piece is because as more and more names start to fall off of this list, I do you want Lucas Giolito at this point? No. If he ends up getting I don't know, he pitched 20 this mil a year, he terrible. He gave up I eight say, runs. I thought he was bad this weekend. Yeah, it wasn't good. Yeah, no bueno. Do you think that it would be good for them to bring back Flaherty or Montgomery? Flaherty's been bad in Baltimore. Would you be interested in them at this point getting Marcus Stroman coming off of the injuries? I, I like Marcus Stroman. I, I will tell you right now, I do not think that the Cardinals are interested in Marcus Stroman. I don't think they are either, but I wouldn't mind signing him. Like, I know he has the injury concern, but... So now you're down to Gray, Eduardo Rodriguez, and that's it. And then the next tier down is Paxton, Maeda, and Severino. And I don't think anybody here will be excited about Ma- uh, Maeda or Severino. There are reasons to be excited about Paxton. Oh, well, let me tell you about. Could him. you? Would the Cardinals fan base? Do you think be excited about an offseason that included one of Nola or Snell, Paxton, and then trading for like a number four starter? I don't think that gets anybody super excited. No, be- but that that might be where they're at. Because I think when you like the immediate reaction would be people would look up James Paxton and be like, "Oh, I've heard that name before. He was really good for a year in uh, Seattle." And then they look at it and go. Oh, wait, he didn't pitch at all in 2022, and he's just covered 96, only 97 innings in the last three years? Like, I think people would look at that and go, that's too much of a risk for your second big signing in the offseason. That's why I think the only way that the fan base gets excited and kind of changes their tone of the Cardinals are willing to spend on pitching is if it's a top-tier guy, Nola or Snell, and then a second-tier guy in whether you want to call it Montgomery or you want to call it uh, Sonny Gray, someone of that ilk. I don't think anything beyond that, I don't think the fan base will be excited. They'll be excited that they signed Nola, but it will raise the question of, okay, now what? And then if you go into a season which you've got James Paxton as like your three with Michaelis as the two and insert the number four that you trade for, I could totally see where Cardinals fans go in the year going, this is no different than any other offseason where you make the one splash – but you got to the line, and to your point, you didn't go past it. You didn't sprint past it like you said you were going to do by saying, we're going to go get three major league quality pitchers. That feels like the classic, we're going to go get three starting pitchers. Oh, look over here. We kind of found our out to kind of avoid really doing it. I think where we are at at this point, and I will make the case for this even further coming up in the 1 o'clock hour, but I think what the Cardinals should do and potentially even will do I think they got to sign one of Snell, Nola, or Yamamoto. I think that is the starting point for the offseason. Part two, you trade for the second best pitcher that you're going to acquire this offseason. I think that player needs to be a number two or a three starter on a contending team's rotation. Fill in the name later, but that's the quality of starter that you need to acquire there. Part three, you acquire probably via free agency somebody that is a bounce back candidate or has a lot of risk involved. So James Paxton would be on that list for me of a guy that has a lot of risk because of his injury history. 
Tyler Malley, coming off of Tommy John surgery, started, I think, five games this year. A lot of risk involved there, but if he comes back healthy, you could get a guy for way less than what he should be getting on the open market. I think the same thing is true for a Colorado Rocky starter. Why am I blanking? Herman Marquez. Herman Marquez. You could go that route as well. There are other guys available on the market, Kintamaeda, Severino, that have risk. You could go out there and sign, and that's your final piece to the puzzle. But it's got to start with that top-end pitcher, then you trade for a two or a three, and then you sign that third starter that is going to potentially bounce back this offseason. And then you got to get into the bullpen. There's other stuff as well, of course, but... I think that's the formula because as I look at these secondary options that are on the free agent market, that could be the equivalent of trading for a two or three. I just don't, I I don't want to pay $20 million for any of these dudes. And I know you might have to, but I would definitely prefer going the trade route for that for sure. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so. Can the Cardinals build their roster the way that the Braves did? T-Bone has one thing in particular that he thinks that they should follow with the Braves model. We'll do that coming up in just a little bit. NFL quick hitters is coming up next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. All right, let's get into some NFL quick hitters alongside T-Bone and Grant. I'm BK. Alex is off this week. He'll be back in the saddle next week. So as we get ready to open up the 2023 NFL season, There are still three major holdouts taking place. Brian Burns with the Carolina Panthers. Nick Bosa with the San Francisco 49ers. And Chris Jones with the Kansas City Chiefs. Now, the two most notable ones are on the teams that are contending for a Super Bowl this year. That's Bosa and that's Chris Jones. Neither has reported yet. And it sure seems like the expectation is neither will do so until there is a new contract in place. We have basically no new updates on either of those contract situations. T-Bone, let's go down the possible route. I don't love this. That both of them miss significant games. Six plus weeks this year. What's that do to the 49ers, the Chiefs, and really the complexion of the Super Bowl race? Uh, So I think if Jones misses a lot of time, it does change the outlook for the Chiefs to where we had this question asked. I think it was in questions and answers. Will they miss out on the first round by? I still think they have a chance, but it becomes a lot tougher. So I, they're still a playoff team, no doubt about that. Oh, yeah. They still win the AFC Both of West. these teams, in my mind, are. Yeah, I would agree with that. I do think if Bosa doesn't report, the 49ers are not winning the West. Um, I think they make a wild card, but I think it does have, I don't think it has Super Bowl implications, just seeding purposes. And I, I think for the Chiefs, still probably a top three team without Jones. I would still argue that they can win the bye. I know you disagree with that. But for the 49ers, I think they are a wild card team for sure if Bosa misses significant time because I like the Seahawks to win that division. And if Bosa misses like eight games, they still got a good defense, but it's nowhere close to the level it is when you have Bosa coming off the edge. I honestly, I don't think it has very much Super Bowl implications. I think it does, like you said, T-Bone, affect seeding maybe. Like maybe the Chiefs are playing an extra playoff game that they wouldn't have played without because they missed out on that first round bye. But for the 49ers with the NFC being so bad, whether they make a wild card or win the division, I still think that they are the top one or two contenders in the NFC. And I don't think Bosa being out changes that. I think the same can be said for the Chiefs. The only difference is the AFC is a lot more difficult than the NFC, but they're both going to be right there at the very end anyway. Yeah, I I think that's true. I do think that both are going to be there at the very end. I I think this has significant impacts on the on the playoff races. Like, I think that 
neither team should be expected to be the top team in their respective conference if these guys miss significant time. Chris Jones is out for six plus weeks. I do not think that the Chiefs will get the number one seed. Full stop. If Nick Bosa is out for six plus weeks, and I don't think he's going to be, it sounds like that one's closer. I do not think that the 49ers can get the number one seed. I tend to agree with T-Bone. I think it changes the way that I look at the NFC West. So I can't remember a time when something like this happened to this degree where we have multiple high profile. I mean, you can make an argument for either of these two players to be the best defensive player in the NFL on legit contenders, and they're potentially missing games because of a contract dispute. That very rarely happens with one player, much less with multiple across the NFL. Do you to- th- totally changes the outlook. Do you think we see these teams kind of buckle on these contracts? Because I would not fold if I'm either of no. the teams. Because you got to report by week nine yeah. if you want to be a free agent. And even then, I feel like the Bosa thing's a little different because he's so much younger. But with the Chris Jones thing, dude, he's going to be 30. I'm not buckling if I'm the Chiefs. No, if you you don't want to report, fine. Take the $7 million loss. We'll get that money back for our cap next year. We'll be fine. We'll figure it out. You're the one that's missing out on $10 million this year because of missing out on games and missing out on all of training camp. It's a crazy, by the way, a genuinely crazy decision by Chris Jones to do so. If they're off by like $3 million a year right now on their contract dispute, He's missing out on $10 million if he ends up holding out eight weeks. That is the $3 million per year that he's currently trying to build back up. It is it is mind-blowing yeah. that he is willing to do this. Now, if they're, my guess is the um, what their agents are telling them is what we just talked about. Hey, you're not in the lineup. Look at what your team's going to be. Look at how it impacts them. True. Now, I would still say if I'm the team, well, you're hurting us and we're still not going to buckle. So just show up. Otherwise, you're going to miss money. Um, I, I would not cave if I'm either side. By the way, I'm fascinated on this Burns one. I say it as a Rams fan because he was a target of theirs last year. Dude, at the he's deadline. They, they wanted to give up another <laughs> surprise, surprise, a first round pick for Brian Burns. And if they can't reach a deal in Carolina and they look to move him, do not be surprised if he's an L.A. Ram by whether that is whatever that trade may occur. Rams can't do that. I agree, but I think they would. <laughs> I think there will be another team that ends up ponying up for him. Uh, Burns is a stud, dude. Like the Bears should absolutely make that move. If, oh, yeah. if they're if they have any belief that Fields is the right guy, and they've got all of the money available to him, like all of the money, just go make the trade for a stud young defender who can come in and be your legitimate top end pass rusher that you're looking for. Yeah, that's something that I would do. Speaking of the Rams, by the way, as we go through some NFL quick hitters. Did you see this injury news for Cooper Cup? He's seeing a specialist, which you never want to hear, about his hamstring injury in Minnesota. He had a setback, and he's been dealing with stuff like this for like a year now, like literally a calendar year. Yeah. Are we going to see Cooper Cup play football this year? I think we will, but don't be surprised if it's not till after week four at, at best. Um. I, I don't know Hope exactly. You didn't have your football season or fo- fantasy football draft. Well, I, I I said on Friday when this was kind of reported and McVay was raising question marks if he would start week one. I I said on air, do not draft Cup in the first round. And I had a chance to take him. And I had a fantasy draft this weekend and I passed up on him. I I had decided to go with Bajan Robinson over Cooper Cup in that spot because of this. I think he does miss some time to begin the year. Will he miss the full year? I don't know if I'll go that far just yet. We'll see what the report is from the specialist. But I would not be shocked if he misses the first four weeks at a minimum. And I, it, there's not a lot of upside for the Rams in anything, whether on the field or for fantasy purposes. It completely affects your value in a Matt Stafford yep. if you want to take Cooper Cup. The, 
this is very bad for the L.A. Rams. It's very bad for football. Like, let's be honest, as football fans, not being able to see one of the best players in the league, regardless of position, that sucks. Um, he's on a crap team with a crap yep. defense, which might have given him even more opportunities this year. So that sucks even worse from a fantasy perspective. I think we'll see him. But man, this you never want to hear a guy is going to a different state to see a specialist for an injury that he's been dealing with for about a year that has continued to bother him the following season. That sucks. And I was reading somewhere there was like speculation that this is probably some sort of tear in the hamstring. Awesome. Can't wait. That'll be right back on the field within the next week or two. Uh, all right. So we've been doing some of these as the athletic has done them on um, the NFL page. Would you rather be team X or team Y? I think this is the best one they've done so far. We've had a few others. They did like the Jets versus the Dolphins. This week, it's the Buffalo Bills or the Cincinnati Bengals. Would you rather, you're a general manager, basically. You're taking over one of these two teams. Which would you rather it be, the Bengals or the Bills? Team, on which side do you fall on? Oh, this one's really tough, but I think I would side with the Bengals. Absolutely. I don't think it's tough. Oh, really? No. I, I think it is tough. The thing that I look at, because I have to kind of remember three years out i think the bills are kind of getting to the end of their super like win now mode mm-hmm. i was just uh, about to say how close do you think they are to just tearing it down I, at this point one year this is, say, this is it i think this is the last last ride for the buffalo bills um for the Bengals, you're still in your kind of win now mode now it's going to get tough as you get into this contract negotiations with burrow on extension they've got uh who is it is it chase it's going to be coming up yep. higgins i think is a free agent at the end of the year Correct. like They've got a lot that they got to sort out money wise, but I I just I I think Joe Burrow's better than Josh Allen, and that's what it comes down for for me. And I think they still have a window ahead of them compared to Buffalo, where I think it is kind of starting to wrap up. I don't think they tear it down completely and rebuild with Josh Allen, but they're going to have to do like a mini retool, I believe. Yeah, I don't think Stephon Diggs wants to be there. <laughs> like, I think that's the biggest <laughs> thing is that away. I just don't believe him when he says that everything's hunky dory. I think that's going to rear its head at some point this year. And I think you're going to see Stephon Diggs throwing his helmet on the sideline, getting all angry and mad at his quarterback because he didn't give him the ball in the situation that he wanted it in. And I think that has the potential for disaster this season. I think the bills are really good. Don't get me wrong. But if stuff starts to go sideways there, it is combustible in a way that the Bengals are not. The Bengals feel stable to me. Joe Burrow feels like a stabilizing presence. I think that even while they do have some guys that are up for contracts, it seems like everybody wants to be there. And I know that's like a very plain thing. I want people to want to be at my team. And some of the dudes on the Bills don't really seem to have that feeling right now. The Bills feel like they're at the end of their winning window, whereas the Bengals are at the beginning of theirs. So give me the Bengals. I would rather be in charge of that team right now, personally. I'm with you there, too. I wanted to ask you, too, BK, because we had one of these last week that you weren't here for. We did the same questions for the 49ers and the Cowboys. That's who it was. I couldn't remember. Cowboys have got a quarterback. That's what I said. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Because the way I looked at it, I, I feel like I said the Cowboys feel like such a more volatile franchise. And next year Belichick, so it's fine. Exactly Fair. what I said, I think. <laughs> I think I truly said that. Belichick's our head coach, yeah. and we got Dak, who I know is a great, I'm not fine. a great quarterback, but a good quarterback. But I think Dak is a top 10 quarterback in the league, and people crap all over him. And I, I think it's because like when you're the Cowboys quarterback, if you're not a top five guy, there's just no way to win, really. Yeah. You're not like, Aikman, you're Tony a problem. Tony was awesome. And for a decade, all I heard was about how he was a choker. Fair, he was, but he was also a great quarterback to have. If you put... Tony Romo on these teams, I think they're winning a ton. 
I think Dak Prescott has, as of today, I would take the Cowboys to have the best record in the NFC this year. That would be my call. I do not think that they will go to the Super Bowl because I don't trust Mike McCarthy in a playoff game. But I do think they will have the best record in the NFC this year. So I would rather be the Cowboys. Look at that defense and all the young talent they've accumulated, man. For all the crap we give Jerry, he's put some good talent on that roster right now. So, yeah, I would, I would go Cowboys. For this season, but in the near future, don't yeah. they have a lot of free agents that they're going to have to do a they've lot of work? they to... a few of them already. They're going to they're gonna have to just back up a Brinks truck to pay Parsons. Yeah. But, <laughs> Um, yeah, they've, they've got most of their guys taken care of at this point. To me, it just felt like the 49ers are always one piece away from being a championship team. And unfortunately for them, that piece is the quarterback, yeah, which is the most difficult important. piece. <laughs> but it is just one piece. If they can find that, then they'll be set. They also always feel like they're hurt. Like, I feel like the yeah, every year at some point. point, we're like, man, look at the injured list for the 49ers. It's like seven pro bowlers. And, and I think six some quarterbacks. Of, yeah, I think some of that is because they draft and develop hurt players like guys that were hurt in college tend to be more hurt in the nfl as well previous injury suggests future injury so i'll go with the cowboys 49ers are obviously great we're nitpicking here because those are two of the top three teams in the nfc same thing with the Bengals and the bills i think the bills are really good man like they might they might have the best record in the afc this year that's in play it is interesting how the afc east has what i view as two combustible teams i think you're right on with the bills to where it could go south the Jets feel the same way to me. I can see where things go south. Yeah. Rodgers throws tantrums, maybe goes on a darkness retreat in season to kind of calm down. And I can see where they're a combustible team as well. I could see it. That's Tanner Hendrickson. He's Grant Francis, and I'm Brandon Kylie. In about 15 minutes, we're diving into the junk drawer. But coming up next, what can the Cardinals do to build their roster the way that the Braves did? And by that, I mean playing the same dudes every single day. I think there's a little something already in play that might get them there. We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You cannot have Nolan Arenado, Willis Contreras, and Paul Goldschmidt and do the Giants thing. Mm-hmm. You can't. You can't have those three guys and do the Rays thing. You have to build a team where you pretty much have a set eight and then build build a bench. And that's going to require you to make some hard decisions in the offseason to trade guys. But you also need pitching. So why not trade, trade if you can, trade some of these, these accent pieces that do have major league talent and major league service time to other teams that are willing to give up a little pitching. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kylie. That was Anthony Stalter last week talking about how the Cardinals need to find their eight position players and then just play them every day. This is pretty similar to what the Atlanta Braves do. He's not wrong there at all. Ronald Acuna Jr. started 136 games for the Braves this season. You can look up how many games they've played. That's quite a lot of them. All of them. He has started every single game in right field. Hasn't played a single other position Right field, he just goes out there and he plays it every single day. Ozzy Albies, 123 games started this year. He's been on the injured list. I think he missed like two weeks. He basically, when they have him on the roster, every single day that he is available, starts for them at second base. Has not started a single other game at a different position other than second. Same is true true for Austin Riley, who's played at all 136 games at third base. Olsen at first base. And then Michael Harris as well. 113 games started this year, all of them have taken place in center field 
and he missed three weeks due to injury at the beginning of this season. So when he's been available, starts every single day in one specific position. T-Bone, I like what Anthony Stolter is saying there. And I think in a best-case scenario, that's what every team in baseball would like, is to be able to play the same dude in the same spot every single day. But do you know why Ronald Acuna Jr. and Ozzy Albies and Austin Riley and Matt Olson and Michael Harris play in the same spot every single day? They're really freaking good. They're amazing. They're young. They're incredible hitters. And oh, by the way, they're all plus defenders. If the Cardinals have that guy on the roster, they're going to play every day. Like, you look at if... Paul Goldschmidt was 25 instead of 35 or whatever he is. He'd be playing every single day at first base instead of taking a day off and getting a DH day every week. The same thing is true for uh, Nolan Arenado. If he didn't have a back that hurt him every single waking moment that he was uh, on the field, then yeah, he'd be playing third base every single day and not getting these DH days. But that back issue is there. Same thing is true for Nolan Gorman. So you're going to have to manage that stuff throughout the season. But next year, I expect Lars Nupar to play every single day when he's available. I expect Jordan Walker to play every single day when he's available. Like those types of things are definitely going to happen here. And I think they're getting really close to having an eight that they can rely on every day at first base, as long as he's not DHing or off that day. And that's not because they don't want to play him. It's because they are managing his health. It's Paul Goldschmidt. Third base is Nolan Arenado. Second base next year is going to be either Nolan Gorman or Tommy Edmond, I would assume. Shortstop, you got Mason Wynn now. Right field, you got Jordan Walker. Center field or left, depending on what they do this offseason, it's very likely to be Lars Newtbar. And in that other spot, I think it's going to be Brendan Donovan, likely in left field. Timon, I don't think the Cardinals are that far away. Not from the Braves roster, like who they have available to them, but the way that the Braves play. Yeah, I'm with you. I I don't think that they're that far away. And I think by the time we're talking about the Cardinals opening day lineup of 2024, most of those guys are going to be regulars that aren't going to be plug and play for like there's not going to be. I don't see a platoon on this roster next year. I, I don't. I, Donovan's playing every day in probably left field, as you said. I don't think you're platooning Newpar. He can hit left-handed pitching. Gorman has shown you this year he can hit left-handed pitching. And then all you, all you have is right-handed bats that are left, and they're all core pieces too. So I don't see where a platoon comes from for the St. Louis Cardinals to the point where I do think they're going to have eight regulars. Now, they are going to rotate rotate them around in terms of what you said, the DH spot, where they're going to be getting some of those guys' days off, and I do think they're probably going to go a more 50-50 split between Contreras and Kisner, and that's kind of twofold. One, it gets Kisner some more time off behind the plate, but also, too, Kisner's proven that he's a major league caliber catcher with a decent bat that you can put into your lineup. So, I'm with you. I think they've got their eight guys basically set to where there will not be any platoons next year like I, I think there shouldn't be a problem if Tommy Edmond is viewed as a quote-unquote bench bat going into next year that maybe comes in for whether it be Gorman or goes into the outfield somewhere to help solidify the defense late in games that's fine I think that's probably what his role is going to be next year unlike this year where they went into the year and they're like okay we've got Carlson in center field against lefties and then against right-handers we're going to have to throw somebody else like Newt Bar into center field to pull Carlson from the lineup there's not going to be any of that next year I believe by the way I think some of this is just it's a it's a it's dishonesty with the way that we've been talking about how the Cardinals approached the lineup this year they really didn't do that all that much they did it early on in the season with Nolan Gorman I, I should be fair there the Cardinals absolutely platooned Nolan Gorman And it was the right call. 
He had not proven at that point that he could hit against left-handed pitching. But guess what they did? Much like last year with Albert Pujols, they allowed him to fail. And he didn't fail. Instead, he proved I'm more than capable of hitting left-handed pitching at this level and therefore do not need to be platooned. And guess what the Cardinals did? Okay, cool. Go. Just go out there and play every single day regardless of the matchup. Now, there are times late in a game where they'll play the matchups a little bit there. Honestly, I think they do it a little bit too much sometime with Nolan Gorman specifically. However, when they go into games, they're allowing him to start against left-handed pitching. I think that's a really smart thing to do. Early on in the season, they had Lars Newport at the bottom of the lineup against left-handed pitching, and then they put him at the top of the lineup against righties. That was absolutely, at that point in time, the correct thing to do based on what they had available. I think next year you'll see more of Lars, just no matter the opponent, batting leadoff because he's proven I'm really good against lefties and righties. I can be the table setter no matter who we're going up against day to day. That is what the Braves have that the Cardinals do not. It's not even so much about where guys are playing day to day. It's where they're batting. They've got dudes that no matter the handedness of the pitchers, no matter if it's a guy that's throwing four-seam fastballs up, slider away, or a guy that's throwing sinkers and curve, whatever the matchup is, they've got dudes they know can hit. They are just going to go out there and rake. And that is the biggest difference at the Cardinals. I don't think they're quite there yet, but they're getting closer. They have not had that kind of a lineup in a decade, really. And now I think you're starting. If you squint, you can kind of see where that comes together next year. But that's what the Braves have that, honestly, I'm not sure there's any other team in Major League Baseball that they have it the way that the Braves do. Every day, their lineup looks the exact same, not just positionally, but where they're hitting. Yeah, there's not a lot of teams that can say that. Most of them have like three, four guys, but a lot of them do run out platoons. And to your point, early on in the year, yes, I do think there was a major concern, whether it be, or not major concern, a major issue with the Cardinals, whether it be giving up the playing time with the five outfielders they had or overdoing it with the platoons. But I think they've really settled that down because guys have taken off with opportunities. The whole reason we talk about the outfield being crowded in the first month of the season, it was crowded because it was crowded with guys that didn't take advantage of the opportunity that they were given. Nobody ran with it. Carlson had his opportunity. He never played up to the point where he should be an everyday starter. Same can be said for a Tyler O'Neill before he got hurt. He was really struggling before he ended up going on the aisle. And I don't even remember what that issue was. Something broke on Tyler O'Neill again. Uh, so it's been more so about that guys just aren't taking advantage of the opportunity that they were given early on in the year. And to your point, and I, this is what I do like about what Ollie has done in the two years that he's been here. He slowly builds guys into what that role is. Gorman, for example, you're right on. He did not hit left-handed pitching at all in the minor leagues. Not just here at the big leagues. He didn't do it in the minors at all. And that's why I was like, there's no way that he can do it here in the big leagues. And he's proven me wrong. And all he started just slowly feeding him that till now it is, okay, he is an everyday guy. He does this in the bullpen as well. Last year, Palante, for example, starts off as a low-leverage guy, works his way to high leverage, and then works his way into the rotation because they needed it. Why? Because Ollie's slowly testing these guys. Look at what JoJo did. Exactly. JoJo started out as a low-leverage low reliever and then worked his way into like late-game situations, and now he's your closer. Like th- those are the kinds of things that he's willing to do if guys prove him wrong or prove him right, depending on which way he's starting to lean towards. Um, he's He's willing to change his preconceived notions but it requires guys to play themselves into that. He wanted so badly for Dylan Carlson to win that job. The Cardinals wanted Dylan Carlson to win that job because he's good defensively and as a switch hitter, if he's actually good as a switch hitter, that makes everything else make sense for their outfield. But Carlson never did it. And if you can't hit against specifically right-handed pitchers, I don't know what you wanted them to do in that spot. That was right to start him against lefties exclusively. 
So at some point they had to make that determination. And I think they're, they're starting to weed out some of those guys from their positional situation right now. You're looking at it. Newt's going to be good against whoever it is. Gorman, same thing. You look on the infield. I don't care what uh, Mason Wynn hits. Neither does the manager. So if he's going to go out there, play plus defense every day at short, you just play him every single day at shortstop next year. They're getting there. It just took them a little while to get here. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, Zach Thompson might be changing the outlook for the Cardinals pitching staff next year. But what he's doing right now really changes the outlook of how they can acquire their pitchers. We'll talk about that coming up at 1 o'clock. The Junk Tour is next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The Junk Drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in, carry out, seven days a week. Alongside T-Bone and Grant, I'm BK. Let's dive into the junk drawer. So guys, imagine you're getting ready to go on a trip that you've been thinking about for years. You're going to Barcelona. You're flying out of Atlanta. So this is going to be a very long flight, but you're so excited because you're going over to Spain. This is going to be an incredible trip. Maybe you're going over to see some some soccer in person, T-Bone. And you get about two hours in. You're feeling good. You're settling into the flight, right? I'm sure at this point you've got... Your electronics are good to go. That sounds like the perfect time for that nice little doze-off nap. Maybe you start up a movie that you've been waiting oh, a while yeah. to, to watch. You know, you're feeling good, right? Maybe you've had that first drink. The cocktail mm. hit a little differently up at 10,000 feet. And then, boom. Over the intercom, they make an announcement. Unfortunately, a biohazard issue has taken place. That's a little alarming. Somebody on the plane has some restroom issues. So much so that they had to go back to Atlanta. You are now two hours in to this flight. And instead of continuing on to Spain, they have decided it is in our own best interest for everybody on this plane that we turned this baby around. We're going to go back to Atlanta. We're going to stop there. And then we're going to get you onto a new flight because this one cannot be utilized because of what has taken place in that restroom back in the back right now. They said, quote, we've had a uh, passenger who's had a diarrhea all the way through the airplane. So they're having us come back to Atlanta. Your reaction would be what? (laughs) I'd be furious (laughs) that we've got to turn around because of a bathroom issue on a already going to be a long flight to Spain. I'm I would love to know how bad this had to have been because like, like, is it smelling up the whole like plane? Like if that's an issue, okay, I'm willing to change planes and turn this bad boy around. I don't know. Um, There are very few details that have been made publicly available on exactly what happened, but there was a, quote, medical issue on the plane, and it had to be redirected. That's that's as much information as we know right now. Apparently, it had to do with diarrhea. I don't know if it was like a dude couldn't hold it, and he just had to sprint down the the middle center area, the aisle, and it was just going down, flowing as he was trying to get to. I don't know what happened. Leaving evidence behind. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what happened. Oh, I would be furious. Like I, it, it had it better be something that like is um, a huge must that you had to turn that plane around. I mean, it must have been. But I would think planes was, aren't in the business of just turning around. But I would for think no if reason. it was a. Have you ever had your plane turn around mid flight? No, but I would think if because I think I saw the route that they were going to Spain because weren't they kind of going up the northeast kind of seaboard? Mm. 
I would think they could have found an air, airport somewhere else they could have landed yeah. at if it was that big an emergency, not to turn around two hours to go back to Atlanta. How long is that flight from oh, Atlanta to Barcelona? Oh, hours. Yeah. Um, I know it's got to be like They made it 10, the next 11. day and they were eight hours late. Oh, well, that's not too bad, I guess. Eight hours? But I would think like you'd have like reservations that could be like in danger of being, you know, like you have a hotel and if you don't show up, they can give the room to somebody else. That would be some of my concern with this eight hours of us being late to Spain. It had to have been something outside the restroom because like it couldn't have just been something that happened in the restroom like that. That's a disaster. Somebody said it's uh, it's strange that Ferrario is not there and there was a biohazard incident (laughs) on a plane. Could the two be connected? Hey, I'm I'm leaving it out open into the (laughs) I'm not telling you that it didn't happen. I I know one of his family members was going out east this weekend. See? Mm. He might this have been interesting. further east. Huh. He was just going to continue on to Spain. He was going to Barcelona, and then he uh, ended up getting kicked off the plane. Coming up in 15 minutes, we're playing a game of in or out. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. You give us a scenario. We'll tell you if we are in or out. That's coming up in about 15 minutes. But next, Zach Thompson has changed a little bit of my outlook for the Cardinals pitching staff this offseason. There's one specific thing that I think changes because of his recent play. We'll tell you about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside T-Bone and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. We'll get to Zach Thompson here in just a moment, but there's a little bit of news that's come out both in the college football landscape and in the NFL. Let's start with the NFL, then we'll get to the college football. So Andy Reid left practice today and is talking to reporters right now. He said Travis Kelsey hyperextended his knee in practice today and, quote, wasn't certain, end quote, about his availability for the game against the Lions on Thursday. He said that they're looking at it right now. They don't have a whole lot of information on it yet, but he did hyperextend his knee, and they are questioning whether or not he's going to be able to play on Thursday night. T-Bone, I will say this. I don't know what this season's going to be for Kansas City. I still think they're going to win the Super Bowl. It's not off to a great start. (laughs) But if this was going to be the season from hell, it would look a little bit like this. It would start with one of your best players, holding out all of training camp because of his contract and then missing games due to that contract. It would then include the one guy who has, I'm pretty sure if I'm not mistaken, Travis Kelsey has missed zero games due to injuries since like his second season in the NFL. I mean, he, he plays at least 15 games every year. And typically the game that he misses is week 16 slash 17. Now, like the, the final game of the season when the chiefs have stuff wrapped up. If he's going to miss week one, (laughs) that is not ideal. And if you're doing a fantasy football draft over the next couple of days, it absolutely impacts the way that I would be looking at him in my fantasy football drafts. I would not take him in the first round after this. We'll see what happens. Maybe he'll be fine. Maybe he plays as early as Thursday. But I don't want to hear that my first round pick has a hyperextended knee, not week one. Yeah, no, that's not ideal. Um, I would uh, I would avoid him first round if you haven't done your fantasy football draft now. And it changes everything in terms of if you're looking at just a – outlook for that game Thursday against Detroit. Like I told you in the office, I kind of was leaning Detroit, but I think I was probably going to take them more on the points. I think they're minus or Kansas City's minus six and a half going into that game. I thought Detroit maybe keeps it close. I might now look to lean on Detroit on the money line yeah. because without Travis Kelsey, though I, I still everything. though I still like some of the weapons that Kansas City has, 
it's it's not the same offense without Travis Kelsey. It just became a little bit tougher for Patrick Mahomes to really carry this team. And the Chiefs struggle without a pass rush, without Chris Jones, if he's not playing, which it does not seem like he's going to be. Yeah, I I really like the Detroit Lions. If this if he's going to miss Thursday night, I think the Lions are going to be taking down the Chiefs week one, and then we'll see what it means for the Chiefs in the long term. All right, so that's the NFL side of things. We also have college football news. The latest AP poll is officially out, the first one that we've actually seen games for. This should be the first one every year, but they put it out for the preseason. I'm, get off my soapbox there. Top five right now in the AP poll after week one. Georgia number one, Michigan number two. I think that is absolutely correct. Alabama number three. Florida State moves all the way up to number four. Ohio State drops down to number five after their win, but not really super impressive win against Indiana. I would continue dropping them down, honestly, even further than that. USC comes in at six, Penn State at seven, Washington eight, Tennessee nine, and Notre Dame is in at number 10. T-Bone, what do you think? Anything stand out to you there as like way too high, way too low? Uh, no, the only one I do agree with you. I think Ohio State should have been dropped a little bit further because of that win against Indiana. That was not impressive at all. That Indiana team is going to be bad, and they were only up by seven at halftime. That's really the only one for me that I would say that's surprising that they didn't drop a little bit further. But I agree with Florida State being bumped up all the way to number four. They belong in the top four after their dominant win against LSU. Yeah, I I, I like that one a lot. Um, I think you could even move them up to number three, and I wouldn't have complained about that at all. Um, but the advanced numbers will all have Alabama up qu- quite high. I would have Ohio State lower. I think I would have Washington ahead of USC at this point. So I would go like five Washington, um, six USC, seven Penn State, eight Ohio State, something like that in that range. So it's not a huge drop off, but I would just kind of reorder those just a little bit. I'm fascinated to see what Texas versus Alabama looks like. That's going to be such a fun game, man. T- top 10 matchup. This early on in the college football season, coming off of last week, having another top 10 matchup, it's pretty good. And what, That's the good stuff. And what makes it exciting is, you do, well, Texas, you got a known quarterback in Quinn Ewers. Alabama, it's still unknown what they have mm-hmm. at the QB position. It's not like last year where they went in and it was Bryce Young versus Quinn Ewers. I think Quinn Ewers was kind of the unknown at that point. Now it's the other way around. I, this game is going to be great. It's got playoff implications, and I think it's going to tell you everything you need to know about the, the Crimson Tide. By the way, one other top 25 matchup that we'll have this week is Tulane taking on Ole Miss. So that'll be a fun one as well. Tulane's really good, dude. Um, I I can't wait to see what that game looks like as well. All right, coming up in just a little bit, we'll get to in or out. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service tax line. But I mentioned Zach Thompson coming into this segment, T-Bone. In his last out- six outings, this includes one relief appearance and five starts. He's gone 29 innings. He has 32 strikeouts in seven walks. That's good for a 3.4 ERA overall in terms of the quality of his pitching. This dude is changing the way that I'm looking at the Cardinals' outlook for their rotation this offseason. And the reason why is because I now feel comfortable after seeing him for six outings and really seeing what we've seen over the last two seasons out of Zach Thompson in terms of the quality of his pitches. I feel confident that he can be a number 5 starter for you going into next season. If I have four dudes that are better than Thompson coming into the year, and then Thompson as my fifth, I feel okay with that. And what that allows me to do is I can go to the market, whether via trade or free agency, and I can target a bounce-back candidate. Maybe that guy is ready for opening day. That's ideal. Maybe he misses the first six weeks of the season, starts a rehab stint, and then is ready to go for me by June 1st. And I can replace whoever is performing worst in my rotation at that point 
with this player that I go out and target. The guy that immediately comes to mind for me is Tyler Malley. He's coming off of Tommy John this year. I think when I say the name, people immediately think, oh, average starter. Go look at the numbers. Tyler Malley is basically Jordan Montgomery. And if you can add that into your rotation on a cheap, below-market-value deal, that is something that I would be very interested in for the Cardinals. Previously, I didn't think they could do it because I thought they needed to add three guys that would be ready to go that could immediately filter into this rotation because they just needed guys. They needed dudes. Now, with Zach Thompson's emergence, I feel comfortable that they can go out and acquire one of those guys this offseason. You also... it comes with the prerequisite of get the number one starter. So go sign Aaron Nola, go acquire somebody. Maybe it's via trade as that number two starter for you. And then that third pitcher target that they've been talking about, that third starter, that's where you can filter into this mix of a bounce back candidate either either because they were ineffective this year or injured. I think that is something that this team can now do. See, I still want a guy that has certainty rather than a bounce back candidate because I want a guy that is ready to go and I feel like I know what I have in him as the number four going into next year. Look, don't get me wrong. I've been really impressed with what Zach Thompson has done, but I would much rather go into the year planning on him either starting the year in AAA as like the number six starter or starting the year in the bullpen as kind of that swing arm for you. I think you still need to add three proven starters at the major league level that are ready to go on opening day. I I don't want to go the bounce back route if I'm the Cardinals. I I would prefer you go, okay, let's go get those top two guys. Let's find somebody that we think we know. Here's what he projects as our number four, and we'll use Thompson as that number six starter for us going into the year. I mean, you're going to eventually use him at some point. You're not going to run through the whole year with just five starters. At some point, Thompson will be up and in the rotation. But I would rather go into the year planning on him being the number six than having him in the rotation and then hoping that a bounce back candidate does bounce back and works his way back into the rotation. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service X line from the 314. Guys, it doesn't surprise me at all that BK is seeing another guy to be added to his list of one-year wonders. He did it with Tyler O'Neill. He did it with Ryan Helsley. He did it with Dylan Carlson. Now he believes, based on a small sample size, that we are going to see something special from Zach Thompson. I definitely... I I went hard in the Tyler O'Neill yeah, campaign. You talked a contract extension. And to be fair, I think that that was a reasonable thing to do at the time. Yeah, his knees didn't ache back then. It would have aged horribly. <laughs> I did not buy into the Ryan Helsley thing. I said I would have considered trading him last year for Danny Jansen. I thought it was a unique and interesting trade proposal that was out there from the Cardinals side of things. Because in general, I'm lower on relievers than most are. I think that if you've got a guy that's coming off of an incredible season and he's got crazy good value for an everyday position player, you should probably go ahead and make that deal if you're on the the team side that's getting the position player. Dylan Carlson I was always a little skeptical about because of the the lack of success that he had against right-handed pitching. We always said something like, uh, who was the comparison? Andre Ethier. That was the comparison that we made for him. Carlson was, at least by us, never billed to be a star. Carlson was billed to be a consistent 270 hitter that you could plug and play and is an everyday regular. The frustrating the frustrating part of this was that he didn't even become that, at least at this point. I think Lars Newpar is the guy that I've fallen for hook, line, and sinker. Brendan Donovan, I've fallen for hook, line, and sinker. Um, and I think Zach Thompson, like my current expectations for him, I think he's a four or five starter. I didn't think he could get to there as of a month ago. And now I do think that he is not only going to get there, I think he's there right now. And for me, this is where me and T-Bone do disagree a little bit. It changes for me what I'm willing to acquire in the offseason if I'm the Cardinals. Uh, It makes me more open to things. And one of the biggest reasons why 
is because this team operates on a budget, whether we like it or not. And because of that budget that they will be hold be beholden to, they're not going to be able to go out there and add Snell and Nola and Yamamoto or Snell and Gray and Severino, something like that. And then also bolster the bullpen. So if they're going to go out there and do both things where they get three starters and try to help out this bullpen a little bit, I think it's going to require them to take a chance on one of those starters that ends up being a little cheaper than some of the guys that we previously talked about. And I will say if they do, if it does come down to the offseason comes to an end and Thompson is going into the years, the number five, but they did reallocate that money on the number four that I've been talking about to use on the bullpen, then I'm not going to crush him for it. In fact, I do think that probably is the smarter move. But just the vibe I got from when we talked to Michael Gersh after the trade deadline, and Alex had mentioned, you know, long long uh, shopping list, and he's like, oh, 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 this bullpen. We don't need to add to this bullpen. It makes me go, okay, if you're not going to add to the bullpen, then that money better be going to another rotation arm that isn't a bounce-back candidate but is a guy that is quote-unquote certainty. And that's why, that's why I have the sense that I have. But if they did do what you're talking about and reallocate that towards a – reliever or two relievers and say let's go Thompson as the number five then I, I would be on board with that because that probably is the smarter route to go he's t-bone that's green I'm, I'm bk coming up next we'll play a game of in or out you give us a scenario we'll tell you if we are in or out on 101 espn we're right back to the bk and ferrario podcast presented by dobbs tire and auto centers on 101 espn Come on, man. Are you in or are you out? It's in or out with BK and Ferrario. Three one four three nine 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 six four six is the air comfort service text line for in or out. You give us a scenario. We'll tell you if we are in or out here on 101 ESPN. Let's start with this T-Bone in or out Mizzou after seeing week one will finish with more wins this year than the fight in Illini. I'm still going to say no, out. get the hell out of here. I'm still going to say out. Not so much in confidence in Illinois, but more so in the fact that I still think Missouri has a tougher non-con or excuse me, a, a tougher conference schedule to where when I look at Illinois, I, they could be a fraudulent like eight win team sure. where they're truly a six win team based on what I saw this weekend. But the whole Big Ten West stinks to where they can pull off more wins than I'm expecting. So I'm still going to say out. But I think I think leaving week one, I feel better about Missouri's uh, whether you want to call it ceiling or just their talent level than I do. Illinois would be what I would say after week one. See, I I have a lot more faith in Mizzou getting to that eight win mark than Illinois at this point, just because. I feel like for teams like Illinois who have a lot of issues up front on their O-line and D-line, you're going to lose the teams that you shouldn't here and there. Um, And Mizzou did what they needed to do. Granted, it was against South Dakota, but they did what they needed to do. They looked good. So based off of what we've seen so far, I don't have that much faith in Illinois. Sorry, Tebow. Well, they lost my faith, too. I'm in. Obviously, Mizzou's going to have more wins this year. They're 12-0, right? That's something like that. Uh, (laughs) K-State's really good. LSU's not as good as anticipated. Georgia's obviously excellent. We'll see on Tennessee. I think most of what we learned, though, in week one was confirmation of the teams that I thought were potentially going to be more down than expected. I don't think Vanderbilt's very good. I think Kentucky, it took them about a half to really get going. Devin Leary had some up and down play in that one. I'm worried about their offensive line. South Carolina didn't impress me very much against North Carolina. We'll see if that was more North Carolina being great or South Carolina taking a little bit of a step back. Um, 
And then Florida was awful, just awful. So if you get those four wins that I just mentioned, you probably get into seven or eight. And I think that might be enough to be better than Illinois this year. So I'll go in. I think Mizzou has more wins this year than Illinois. T-Bone? So we talk about building like the Braves a lot, right? Mm -hmm. Well, what do the Braves do? They lock up everybody in sight on contract extensions. In or out, we will see the Cardinals sign one of their young core pieces to a contract extension this offseason or in spring training next year. Ooh, I like this one. So names that come to mind for me would be a Newt Bar, Gorman, Walker. I don't know if Wynn would really fall into this just yet. Donovan, maybe. Newt Bar feels very much like the type of player that you would want to get locked up long term. He's 25 years old. I know nobody wants to hear this because there feels it's kind of strange, but there's almost like a push and pull with Newt where he has become controversial in how people view him. I think he's going to probably end up on the free agent market getting something similar to what Brandon Nimmo just got, which is like 20 mil a year. So if you could get him locked up this offseason and you don't have to worry about that until he's more than 30 years old, I think that would be ideal. So yeah, I think Lars Newtbar would be the one that I immediately say makes a lot of sense because he's the type of player that gets paid on the open market. Lefty bat, above average defender, can play anywhere in the outfield, adds speed to your lineup, gets on base at a really high clip, and might be able to add some of that power element to his game. So I'll, I'll say I'm I'm in, and I think it's Lars Newtbar. I'm in because I think they're going to... I think they want to lock up one of those guys. And I think the guy that would scare me would be Gorman could be the guy that could get super expensive in arbitration. Maybe they want to be hesitant because he's the kind of guy that could have a really good year and then have an okay year. Yeah. I, I I would seriously talk with Jordan Walker. I would try and lock him up. And That's you where know, I was going to go. You know I am anti-extension. I did not like the way that the Braves did it where they locked up their whole team for 10 years. I would explore contract extension talks with Jordan Walker. That's how much of the real deal I think he is and how much he could really start to outprice himself if you start getting into the arbitration process. Yeah, I'm in on this, too, with all the candidates we just talked about. Like, It would be unlikely that one of them doesn't happen. Um, but for Jordan Walker, like the Cardinals are so hellbent on you know not trading him or letting him go, and they should be with what we've seen lately. So get on it early. That's the best way to do it. If you're going to do it, do it early. So that would be my guy. What do you got for us, Grant? So with the... Uh, News about Travis Kelsey potentially missing week one. Sorry, I'm to, add, crisis mode I'm over sorry here, to add to your crisis, BK, but uh, I got to looking at the Lions schedule in or out. The Lions start five and one or better this season. Their schedule is the Chiefs, the Seahawks, the Falcons, Packers, Panthers, Buccaneers out. That's a tough star, man. Um, Carolina, Tampa Bay definitely should be wins. I think people are sleeping a little bit on Green Bay this year. As of today, I would bet on them to win that division. I think people are sleeping a little bit on Atlanta this year. As of today, I would bet on them to win the division. And I think Seattle is winning the NFC West right now. So I'm going to say out. I don't think they end up at five and one through six. I think they're four and two-ish. I'm going to say in. I I love the Lions. I don't think they're losing that division to Green Bay. I don't think Green Bay is going to be very good. I don't know what to expect from Jordan Love. Looks good in the preseason, dude. And we know preseason matters. Yes. Spring yes. training as does a, not, but preseason absolutely matters. As a big advocate on yes. you should buy into everything you see in the preseason. <laughs> um, but I, I think they can, if Kelsey is out this Thursday, I think they beat the Chiefs. Seattle will be the one where I could see they lose, but I'm not as high on Atlanta. I think they should beat Atlanta. I think they should go into Green Bay and, and beat Green Bay. They should beat Caroline. They should beat Tampa Bay. I, I see where they can go 5-1, and one, if not 6-0. and oh. So I'm going to say I'm in on this. <laughs> 
I'm a Lions believer, man. Who's, I, who plays defense for them? Do they have anybody on oh, the defense? They don't matter. Jared, Jared Goff is going to be the guy that gets them to 5-1. and one. He's got so many weapons around him. Like, Does, I, does he, though? I, I disagree with this notion. I think we've built up the Lions offense into something that it's not. Who's their second best wide receiver? Well, when he comes back, it will be... Uh, sure, Jameson Williams. Williams. Who is their second best wide receiver? We're six weeks away from them. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if... Josh we, Reynolds? Is that where we're at? We, we think Sam Laporta is going to come in and be the first rookie tight end to ever be, like, really good. Marvin like, Jones? Yeah, exactly. I No, I, I think that we have over... I like their offensive coordinator a lot. I think the Lions could be a really good offense again this year. I think we've kind of gone, like, three steps too far with how great their weaponry is in that offense. I mean, let's be you have honest. one injury, and I think this is an offense that could be a house of cards. The second best wide receiver could be their running back group. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like um, David, David Montgomery, every single one of us has had on our fantasy football team at some point in the last four seasons, and we were all underwhelmed by him. Jameer, we're putting a lot of weight in Jameer Gibbs. That's basically what's happening right now. We think Jameer Gibbs is going to be significantly better than DeAndre Swift, and David Montgomery better be a hell of a lot better than Jamal Williams. Because if that's not true, then where do they upgrade? Where are they better than they were offensively a year ago? That's what I'm trying to understand. So, I'm, I'm still a Lions I like supporter. the Lions. I, I want to say that up front. I like the Lions. I think they're a super fun team, but I think we have... You just said you're going to pick the Bay- or the Packers to win the North. Yeah, because I don't see anybody on this defense that scares me. Nobody, not a single one of them. I see one wide receiver that matters for them, and I see a defense that is not overwhelming at all. You want to In talk fact, about it's very the underwhelming. Epitome of not scaring me. It'd be epitome. Jo- I didn't know the right epitome? word. Yeah, epitome <laughs> of what scares me. Jordan Love at quarterback does not frighten me at all, and it's going to take a lot to change that notion for me. Let alone he. You want to talk about not having weapons? So, by he the doesn't way, have weapons. A lot of people saying Sam Laporta is a local kid. I like Sam Laporta. I think he's going to be a good player. Look at the history of rookie tight ends and what they did in the NFL. It ain't a whole lot going on. All right. Sorry, Grant. No, by the way, I'm going to be in on the Lions going five yeah. and one through this first six weeks. Take that. I don't care about but, all your wide receiver core. <laughs> Someone will step up and, and but, fill that role. By they the way, do, by the way, have a really good offensive line. So that matters. Yeah. By the way, to your point on the tight end spot, not so much about him being a rookie. I, I was telling a buddy of mine this last night because he drafted Laporte in his fantasy league. They had TJ Hawkinson last year, and he didn't he didn't put up the same numbers he did in Minnesota. They they did not get him involved in the offense like they probably should have. So like I'm not expecting Sam Laporta to kind of come in and become what Hawkinson was in Minnesota. So I think that's a fair point on kind of tampering Thanks, down T-Bone. his expectations. I appreciate you saying that. Now you're saying the Packers are winning the North was crazy to me, so I won't support that one. That's fair. Uh, it is a little bit of a paper tiger that i'm oh, yeah. trying to build up here and that i i'm worried about the lions wide receivers and then i'm gonna say look over here and not point yeah. to any of the packers wide receiver issues who's or their top wide out? <laughs> well they've got christian watson unfortunately after him they have a bunch of dudes that have yeah. never caught nfl yeah, passes it's like toothpicks and bubble gum and their wide receiver two rookie tight ends <laughs> the lions have one rookie tight end the Packers top two are both rookie tight ends so <laughs> A lot going on in the NFC North this year. All right, in or out, guys. This comes from the text line from the 314. In or out, Ryan Helsley finishes the season with the most saves on the Cardinals next year. Uh, Helsley is the primary closer for the Cardinals next year. I'm going to say I'm in on this. I think he's going to be their top arm still out of the bullpen. I, I don't, don't get me wrong. JoJo's been great. Um, 
I have some concerns with JoJo. He feels like the typical have a great year and then really fall back down to earth kind of reliever. I think Helsley's got the best stuff in the pen when he's healthy and right. And I think you saw that this weekend against Pittsburgh. Had the fastball, had an electric slider. I, I think he's the guy. Now, it's going to be a lot closer than you expect because the way Ali Marmol manages where he will use Helsley in the seventh or eighth inning when he feels like, hey, this is the heart of the order. We're not going to save him for a typical save situation. But, yeah, I'm I'm in on it being Ryan Helsley, and that scares the hell out of me, but I'm in on it. I'm going to go in on that as well, looking at what he had last year, what he was able to do for the Cardinals on a team that really needs help in that category this season. They're going to go right back to him next season, and I think he's going to end up leading the team in saves for sure. I think they add somebody from the outside that is not currently on the roster that ends up leading them in saves next year. Go ahead and add a bold prediction for you. Josh Hader? Probably Jordan Hicks. Coming up next. I can't think of anything that I have seen that was the equivalent to what we saw this weekend from one specific coach. We'll discuss why coming up next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Colorado Buffalo football is irrelevant in Denver, Colorado. <laughs> Nobody follows it. We don't ever talk about it. It's just not, it doesn't exist. And instantly put it on the map, instantly made it popular, instantly had people talking about it. And I tell you, it has just been absolutely amazing to watch what has transformed up in Boulder under Deion Sanders. Colorado football has won winning football season since 2005 alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis. I'm Brandon Kylie. That was Mark Schlereth on ESPN radio talking about what Colorado is doing under Deion Sanders. Listen, we're one game into this thing. We have no idea where this train is headed. It may be a disaster. And we saw in week one, them go up against a TCU team that lost a whole hell of a lot of talent coming off of a college football playoff season that is in play. And I want to state that up front. And even if that happens, I don't care because Deion Sanders has already proven more than what I thought he was capable of doing or what I thought anybody was capable of doing at that specific job, dude. This program used to be relevant. T-Bone, this is prior to your really like conscious living, but in the 90s, Colorado was good. Like not they were a fun team. That was a cool story. No, they went to Orange Bowls, plural, in the 90s. This was a team that was relevant at the national stage. They had some like genuinely great football players at that program. Bill McCartney, Bill McCartney built them into a powerhouse in the Big Eight on an annual basis. And then it just stopped. Gary Bennett was there. They've tried a bunch of different coaches from a duff, bunch of different places, and none of it's worked. So they said, you know what? Screw it. Deion Sanders is available. At Jackson State, he had success there. We have no idea if what he's doing there translates to the Power 5 level. No clue. But let's go ahead and try it. A place like Pro- at Colorado, what do we have to lose? And T-Bone, I have never seen a place like Colorado as relevant as they have been over the last seven months now. In Deion Sanders' era, they have gone about things in a way that is completely different than everybody else. I thought it was going to end in disaster. They they booted off like 60 kids from their roster from the end of last season until today. And some of that was necessary. They won one game last season, 
But a lot of it is, dude, are you going to be able to fill a roster through the portal? Like almost exclusively through the transfer portal. The answer was yes. He found a way to do it. And in week one, they were the most impressive team that I watched relative to the expectations that I had for them. I can't remember anybody doing this where they took a program from complete irrelevancy to leading sports center on week one and then being the headliner for week two on big noon Fox kickoff. That doesn't happen at a program like Colorado. Do you have something that would be a comparison for you, T-Bone, that you can think of? No, nothing Nothing really comes to mind with what Deion Sanders is doing there at Colorado, taking a program like the Buffaloes and making them relevant and not just doing it not doing it and being successful because we'll see how that goes, sure. but doing it in year one because typically programs that do kind of have to go through that mold of bringing in a new coach and getting to that relevancy, sometimes it takes them a couple of years. Look at like Duke football now. Duke football, they brought in their new coach last year. They played pretty well. Now they're kind of on the stage in year two because they just beat Clemson. Some of those schools, but there's it takes no pop. Like, there's no buzz around it. Yeah. Like, yeah, they've got a really good quarterback who apparently is maybe a first round draft pick. There's some buzz around him, but there's no pop. There's no pizzazz. I couldn't go up to my my wife and say, "Hey, who's the coach at Duke?" Oh, There's I don't even no know the clue. head coach of the Duke Blue it's, Devils. Did you know prior to yesterday that they had changed their coach in the last couple of years? No. Yeah, it's exactly. why it kind of first popped into my head. A hundred percent. And so, like, there's buzz around Duke because they got a big win, but it's not because of somebody. the The buzz about Colorado is Dion. My friends that pay zero attention to football whatsoever are texting me over the weekend about Dion Sanders as the head coach at Colorado and what they did. That is different. That is something that I I think the closest thing to it, and it obviously failed spectacularly, but like Urban Meyer in the NFL had some of that, where everybody was watching to find out, are we about to see a car wreck, or is this actually going to work? Nobody really knew everybody pointed to the train wreck as the likely possibility there, but let's see what it looks like. I think that's what Dion has become in college football right now, is he's this crazy good motivator who has an incredible... He's like an influencer on social media now. Like, I don't totally know how this happened, but he is that. Um, he had a years-long media career. And, oh, by the way, he was one of the coolest players in the NFL for one of the coolest franchises in the NFL in the 90s. It's like you add all of this up, and it's a very unique situation for this man to be at this job at this time. I don't know that there's anybody else that I can point to that had a similar type of effect on a program where they just became the face of the program overnight. And then it buzzed nationally. Like he has national relevance because of this. Yeah, I, I can't think of anybody. I was kind of thinking Texas A&M when they hired uh, Jimbo Fisher, but they were kind of relevant because of Johnny Manziel before yeah. that. But he kind of brought them back to that stage. Now, granted, that's been a train wreck the, la- the first, what, two years that he's been there at A&M. But again, they were already kind of established prior to him showing up. I, I can't think of a coach that's really done this, where he has the kind of the pizzazz that you're talking about, comes in and, and you hear all this talk of, like, I believe in our team, and everybody else is doubting us. It's like, okay, you're 20 and a half point underdogs. You're going to TCU, who just got to the national championship. And then they go out there and they they ball. They they were they compete with them the whole game and end up beating them. So I, I can't think of anybody that does this. I, I thought this was going to be, it's a different sport, but I thought this was going to be like the Patrick Ewing era at Georgetown, where you hire the big name, the former athlete. He played for them, unlike Dion. He didn't play at Colorado. Yeah. But it was, hey, look, we got this Hall of Fame basketball coach. 
and then nothing came of it. it. There was no buzz around the program, which I think they were hoping was going to happen after he got hired. He didn't recruit well. They were a disaster his whole tenure, and they just ousted him, I think, this past year. I thought that's what the Deion Sanders kind of tenure was going to look like in Colorado. And now you talk about them, and it's from one game performance against TCU. You look at them and go, man, they're one of the top teams in the Pac-12, and what we just have said all day is arguably the best conference in college football. couple others that I would point to that are – there is nothing that is equivalent of this, at least not as far as I can think. And if you've got one on the text line, feel free to send it in at 314-399-9646. Jim Harbaugh at Florida had some of this. It was different. He was coming off of what was like that split national championship. The way we used to do college football was stupid. But uh, went undefeated at Utah, was this incredibly highly thought of coach, and then goes to Florida and right away is relevant there. But it didn't it didn't pop as quickly as this did. Jim Harbaugh at Michigan, I think, is the closest thing that we've seen to what we're seeing right now with Dion. Michigan was down at the time. He had come from the NFL where he had a ton of success, obviously previously was a successful coach at Stanford as well. And that's where I think it's the the biggest difference. There's no track record at any level, even close to what Colorado is by Dion. Dion and his son, who is the starting quarterback there, are the reason why this program matters right now. And we didn't know if either of those two things was going to work. His son looks like one of the best quarterbacks that I saw all weekend. Shadur Sanders was awesome, incredible in that game. And Dion coached a good game and obviously has his players playing at a high level as well. So I, I think you could point to those. The one other that I would I would maybe throw into the mix as being somewhat similar. I'm blanking on which one it was. I had one in in my mind, but there was there was one other that maybe you could point to. But I, I think that's kind of it right now. Yeah, I could point to maybe because it put some buzz around the program, but then they laid an egg this week. Steve Spurrier at South Carolina, but he was already one of the winningest coaches in college football based on what he did at Florida. But he added immediate spark and buzz and excitement around the South Carolina program, uh, similar to what we're seeing right now with Dion. Another one I was going to throw here, and he doesn't even really fit this because he had success in the college level before leaving to the NFL and it failed spectacularly. But we started talking about the program again this year till they laid an egg against Minnesota. It's Nebraska with Matt Rule. But again, it's totally different. Yeah. Where he had success elsewhere, went to the NFL level, failed spectacularly in Carolina, and then gets brought back. And there's kind of that buzz around Nebraska, but then they lose week one. And now it's just kind of, it's not Matt Rule in the Nebraska. Maybe he's going to turn it around versus Deion Sanders in Colorado. No, that whole game this weekend is all about Colorado, and you're not even talking about Nebraska. I, I wonder, too, I was just going to say, if – Players now go the route of Deion Sanders instead of going into coaching in the NFL, seeing this kind of success. I wonder if the appeal changes of maybe instead of trying to break into the NFL and coaching there, just go to a program in college that has in recent history been terrible and turning it around. So the other thing that Dion did that was different was he immediately got the head coaching job. He wasn't an assistant somewhere. He he went to Jackson State, built it his way there and then got the opportunity to jump at a higher level. That's something that I definitely think, Other, if I'm another player, you've got to have such a high Q rating to make this possible. But that, that's the trend that you can maybe follow from Dion. The problem is there's going to be so many imitations of Dion that aren't Dion. Like, D- Dion is clearly a good coach. Whatever you think about him as a person, whatever, he's a good coach. And so if you get a bunch of dudes that try to go a similar path that don't have the same qualities as Dion Sanders, it's going to go poorly. It's kind of similar to the Manning cast, right? Manning cast is the best. It's excellent. Every Monday night, I look forward to watching that. 
Do you know how many terrible imitations there have been of the Manning cast since that ended up working out? Were you out? thinking of the K-Rod cast? All of, all of them, for the most part, have not been up to the same standard as the Manning cast. So you're going to see something similar with everybody trying to emulate what Dion has done. First top 20 road win for Colorado since 2002. Travis Hunter, who's the wide receiver and corner for them, uh, in 100-degree heat, played 129 snaps as a two-way player. Had 11 catches for 120 yards at wide receiver, and then an interception and a near interception pass breakup as well defensively. One of the best games that you'll ever see as a two-way player in college football. So just remarkable stuff, really, what we're seeing right now at Colorado. Hey, coming up next, we're going to hit the BK and Ferrario Rewind and something cool. We're going to give you a chance to win a pair of tickets to see Guns N' Roses. So stick around. We'll give you that chance coming up next. You're on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's run it back with a daily rewind on PK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Stewart's American Mortgage. Google the bagel loan featuring zero fees and zero closing costs. If you missed anything from today's show, be sure to check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com, and the free 101 ESPN app is where you go to find it. It's all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. And coming up on September 22nd, don't forget, you can join us for Blues and Brews on Friday evening at the Anheuser-Busch Brewery. Get fired up for the Blues season by hanging out with us. You'll get appearances by Blues players, alumni, food trucks, Blues merch, 101 ESPN giveaways and so much more. The tickets are on sale now. Just go to 101ESPN.com for additional details on the Blues and Brews. That's coming up on September 22nd. At the end of this segment, we'll give you a chance to win a pair of tickets to see Guns and Roses. To finish things out, though, today, uh, T-Bone, the Cardinals are back in action tonight against the Atlanta Braves, the team that we all want the Cardinals to emulate. What do you think we see out of Miles Michaelis against this Braves lineup? Hopefully you see a little bit more of what you saw in his last outing where he settled in after giving up, I think it was a three-run second inning. And I remember we talked about it that day when that happened of what's going on with Miles Michaelis, something seems off. The way he bounced back, that would be what you hope to see. Five, six solid innings tonight, three earned runs or less. I don't want to leave this game going, oh man, he got shellacked against a really good playoff team, and we start to add back up to that speculation of what's going on with Miles Michaelis. You got to win this one. This is the game that you got to win in the series. Because the next really? two, you've got Strider and Freed. Yeah, oh. Just avoid the sweep. That's all I'm no. asking for this team down no, the stretch. No, no, just no. avoid sweeps. No. Get swept, just be competitive in all three games, and let me leave each game going. I liked what I saw from this individual Walker, Wynn, yeah. Gorman, the young Michael guys. Michael is a solid outing. They just couldn't get over that hump. Yeah. We will all three be back in together again tomorrow. This is the show for this week. Alex has taken some much, much more deserved uh, vacation days. So for T-Bone and Grant on BK, now is your chance to score a pair of tickets to Guns N' Roses with special guest The Pretenders this Saturday night at Bush Stadium. Tickets for the show are on sale now, and you can get four select tickets for just $90, or you can text in right now at 314-399-9646. And if you are texture number 101 with the correct answer to this question, you're getting a pair of tickets to see Guns N' Roses. The question is, earlier today, we talked about a plane that was shut down and had to go back to where it started from. Why was that plane shut down? If you got the correct answer and your text are number 101, you're going to see Guns N' Roses. We'll talk to you guys tomorrow at 11 a.m. The Fast Lane's coming up next. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.